4. The Laws of Motion 2. The Impoverishment of the Working Class The vital corollary for the Marxian system of the ever-thinning ranks of the centralized capitalists is the ever-swelling ranks of the proletariat and their increasing impoverishment and immiseration. The two antagonistic classes engage in a dialectic all their own, the culminating dialectic in the Marxian system. On the one hand, the ever-thinning ranks of the ever-wealthier capitalists, until, or nearly until, one man owns all the wealth in the world. On the other, the ever-swelling ranks of the ever-more impoverished proletariat, until the proletarian masses rise up and take over. But let Marx tell the story, in what amounts to his rousing peroration in the penultimate chapter of Volume 1 of Capital. Hand in hand with this centralization or this expropriation of many capitalists by few, develop on an ever-extending scale the cooperative form of the labor process, the conscious technical application of science, the entanglement of all peoples in the net of the world market, and with this the international character of the capitalistic regime. Along with the constantly diminishing number of the magnets of capital who usurp and monopolize all advantages of this process of transformation, grows the mass of misery, oppression, slavery, degradation, exploitation. But with this, too, grows the revolt of the working class, a class always increasing in numbers, and disciplined, united, organized by the very mechanism of the process of capitalist production itself. The monopoly of capital becomes a fetter on the mode of production, which has sprung up and flourished along with and under it. Centralization of the means of production and socialization of labor at last reach a point where they become incompatible with their capitalist integument. This integument is burst asunder. The knell of capitalist private property sounds. The expropriators are expropriated. Now here is a critical and crucial point in the Marxian argument. The increasing impoverishment of the working class is a key to the Marxian system because on it rests the allegedly inevitable doom of capitalism and its replacement by the proletariat. If there is no increasing impoverishment, there is no reason for the working class to react against their intensifying exploitation and burst asunder their capitalist integument those fetters on the technological mode of production. So how does Marx demonstrate the increasing poverty of the proletariat? At this point, Marx seems to grow desperate and to come up with a number of varied and contrasting arguments, some of which are mutually contradictory. It's as if Marx wildly tries to multiply the arguments, however feeble, in the hope that at least one will stick, and that he will demonstrate the inevitability of the next proletarian-communist stage of history. But all of these attempts to prove increasing misery come up, first and foremost, against an insuperable obstacle, an obstacle that only Ludwig von Mises has clearly demonstrated. For if workers' wages are already and at all times at the means of subsistence, kept there by the iron law, 
how can they get any worse off? They have been at maximum poverty level, so to speak, for a long time. But if for that reason they cannot get worse off, where is the dynamic that will lead them to rise up and overthrow the system? We can concede, of course, that the new proletarians, so rudely tossed into the ranks of the working class by their triumphant fellow capitalists, will be particularly edgy and disgruntled at their new lot in life. But surely Marx would not be content to confine his revolutionary workers to the relatively limited ranks of recently déclassé capitalists especially since the bulk of the workers simply remain where they have always been, at the margin of subsistence. Setting aside for the moment this grave inner contradiction with the iron law of wages, how does Marx propose to establish his alleged law of the increasing impoverishment of the proletariat? In one answer, the eternally falling rate of profits puts a severe pressure on capitalists to find more profit by sweating and exploiting the proletariat more intensively, making them work harder and for longer hours. But aside from the problem of the ever-present iron law, Marx is faced with the problem, why did capitalists allow their rate of exploitation to grow slack until finally spurred on by a falling rate of profit? Don't capitalists always and at all times try to maximize their rates of profit? And if so, and unless we are to assume a sudden intensification of greed or of eagerness for profit among capitalists, they are never slack or lax in squeezing the greatest possible amount of profit from the workers. But then, how can a falling rate of profit spur them on to ever greater heights? Surely it is not simply a desire for profit. Here Marx falls back on a suggested mechanism for this increased exploitation of labor and falling wage rate, the accelerating growth of a permanent industrial reserve army, a growing legion of the unemployed. It is increased competition from the unemployed that forces wage rates downwards and increasingly continues to do so as capitalism advances. But how can there be a continuing army of the unemployed when wages to the unemployed are zero? Why don't the unemployed starve to death before they can ever constitute a competitive threat to the employed proletariat? If Marx answers that the unemployed are rapidly absorbed into the employed ranks, driving down wage rates thereby, then he abandons his requirement for increasing impoverishment, the growth of a permanent and expanding army of the unemployed. So how are they supported, and how do they continue in existence? Also, where does the industrial reserve army come from? Market economists know that unemployment quickly eliminates itself by lowering wage rates. Only if wage rates are bolstered above the market equilibrium level does unemployment become permanent. And if, as Marx maintains, the unemployed army lowers wage rates through its competition, then it should rapidly disappear and pose no further problems. But where does the Industrial Reserve Army come from in the first place? For Marx, it is the old bugaboo, 
technological unemployment. Industry is mechanized, and workers are thrown, presumably permanently, out of jobs. But what of the expansion of quantity demanded and of production brought about by technological innovation? And what of the increased demand for production and resources in other industries that are freed by cheaper products in the technologically expanding industry? And what, as we have seen above, of lower wage rates as the free market way of maintaining full employment of labor? Technological unemployment is an old and oft-discredited bogey. When automatic dialing for telephones was established, for example, there was a general piteous wail that the poor, beloved telephone operators would be thrown out of work by this productive but heartless innovation. And yet, of course, the lower prices of telephone service resulted in an enormous expansion of telephones market, including a substantial increase in the number of telephone operators. Similarly, the number of workers in the construction industry have been increased, not slashed, by the development of cranes, electric shovels, and other construction machinery, as compared to the good old days of hand shovels. All in all, for the technological unemployment argument to work as a way of demonstrating increasing impoverishment, not only would each successive technological innovation have to cause permanent unemployment, but the effect would have to accelerate over time, and thereby more than offset any equilibrating tendencies toward greater employment that the market might possess. In the discussion of the alleged Industrial Reserve Army, we have been dealing with Marx's assertion that there is a permanent secular increase of that army. Below we shall deal with another Marxian doctrine of the recurrence of cyclical unemployment, which, along with ever-worsening cyclical depressions, may provide the motor of increasing misery and proletarian revolution. Another Marxian argument for the inevitability of the impoverishment of the working class is found particularly in the Communist Manifesto. As machinery develops and capitalists accumulate capital, Marx and Engels lament labor loses its variety of skills and the proletariat gets pushed into ever simpler, more monotonous and unskilled tasks and this de-skilling lowers the average wage. This feeble argument rings particularly hollow nowadays, when left-liberal friends of the working class are pushing the exactly opposite lament, that in an age when ever greater numbers of labor are going into high-skilled computer and electronics work, what is to happen to the poor, aging, unskilled laborer left behind in the march of progress? A related Marxian argument stresses not so much the increasing impoverishment of the working class, but its immiseration through aggravated alienation, increasing monotony or repulsiveness of work caused by expanding mechanization. While Marx himself indeed refers to such alleged expanding misery in work of the laboring class, we have seen at length above that for Marx alienation had nothing to do with subjective psychology or monotony of work, 
but was cosmically rooted in, and indeed defined as an attribute of, the basic modern system of exchange and the division of labor, and beyond that in the separation of individual men from man and from nature that was going to be cured, and could only be cured, by communism. Apart from the empirical problem of how more monotonous work was really becoming, and the contrast to the liberating nature of the increasing variety of wants, products, and occupations, it is difficult to see how or why any alienation should increase significantly over time, much less how this increase is conveyed in some way to the working class. No, the case of increasing misery as a spur to revolution must be a palpable and objective one, evident to the working class, or be no case at all. We are left with the doctrine of the growing impoverishment of the proletariat, a doctrine so crucial in Marx that it can hardly be trivialized as a prediction that somehow went astray. This prediction is absolutely critical to the allegedly inevitable tendency for the workers to rise up and overthrow capitalism, a tendency that is supposed to deepen and accelerate as capitalism progresses. And yet, it has been starkly evident to everyone that one of the vitally significant facts of the century and a half since the birth of Marxism has been the continuing spectacular growth in real wages and in the standard of living of the working class and of the mass of the population. Indeed, what we have seen in this period is the most spectacular growth in industrialization and in living standards in the history of the world. Moreover, and particularly telling in a critique of Marx, that advance of the working class has been particularly striking precisely in the advanced capitalist countries of the West, those that were supposed to herald the growing impoverishment of the proletariat. Here is a stern and unrelenting fact that every Marxist must face, and one that by itself can and should destroy the Marxian system. How have the Marxists dealt with this grave problem? Some Marxists, of course, have simply abandoned the ship, either noisily proclaiming their defection or quietly slipping from the fold. A few Marxists, as Schumpeter bemusedly notes, actually do not mind taking up the ridiculous position that a tendency for the working class's standard of life to fall is in fact observable. But generally, Marxists have tried to save the phenomenon, salvage the theory, by various fallback positions or forms of evasion. One popular tactic asserts that the underlying tendency toward impoverishment still exists, but has been temporarily, one or two centuries, offset by counteracting factors. A popular but bizarre Leninist variant is that workers in the West have benefited from imperialist Western exploitation of or investment in the Third World, so that in a sense, Western workers become capitalists on an international scale. 
In the first place, in this transmutation of the oppressed proletariat of the West into exploiting capitalists of the Third World, whatever happened to the inevitable dwindling of the capitalist class? Second, the grotesquerie of this doctrine may be gauged by the fact, as P. T. Bauer has demonstrated in many works, that the bulk of the Third World, however poor, has also been developing rapidly in recent decades, and the standard of living of their working masses has steadily risen. Not only that, but this development and rise in standards has taken place precisely in those areas and regions of the Third World, for example, port cities, in closest trading and investment touch with developed Western countries. On the other hand, it is the remote areas of the Third World, not yet opened up to trade with the West, that have lagged behind in this economic growth. None of this can be squared with the image of the Western world making its tremendous strides over the century at the expense of what would have to be very rapid and deep impoverishment and immiseration of the masses in the Third World. Apart from imperialism, there have been other intervening factors that various Marxists claim to have temporarily interrupted the working of inevitable impoverishment. A particularly popular choice at about the turn of the 20th century was the closing of the frontier in the western United States. The frontier thesis eventually lost popularity as the event receded in memory and the workers' living standards continued their inexorable advance, although it was curiously revived in the outlandish stagnation thesis of the late 1930s, in which the closing of the frontier, along with other ill-chosen factors, was suddenly supposed to have risen up out of its grave of four decades and smitten the economy with an unexplained, delayed immiseration. But by far the most popular fallback position has been to change the terms of the argument and the prediction. Flying in the face of the evidence, these Marxists contend that Marx did not really mean absolute impoverishment, a continuing fall in the standard of living. He meant a fall in the relative income of the workers, relative, of course, to the standard of living of the capitalist class. It was relative impoverishment, not absolute, that Marx supposedly meant, and that the Marxists were now proclaiming. As an empirical question, relative impoverishment may or may not be true at various times and places, but its cogency is certainly dubious. It is certainly clear that the degree of inequality, for example, under Oriental despotism, or in the absolutist France of Louis XIV, was far greater than it is under modern capitalism. But more important is the ludicrousness of relying on relative impoverishment as a sufficient motor for the working class to rise up in bloody revolution to overthrow the capitalist class. If a worker has one yacht, will he rise up in rebellion because there are others in the society who have two or three? Or, to put it more realistically, will a worker with two color TV sets rise up in revolution because Rockefeller or Lee Iacocca or Hugh Hefner has a larger set in each room? 
We are a long, long way from immiseration. The coming inevitable wrath of the proletariat has turned at last to farce. And yet, even the head of official Marxism after Engels, Karl Kautsky, being forced in 1899 to admit that the standard of living of the workers was rising, was compelled to fall back on the view that what Marx really meant was relative, or what Kautsky called social poverty. By social poverty, Kautsky frankly meant envy or covetousness, and so he was obliged to fall back on the view that gaining in income but seeing others gain more would suffice to rouse the workers into enough envy to rise up and overthrow the entire system. In any case, it is far more plausible that envy would be institutionalized in political drives, say for a progressive income tax or various subsidies from government, rather than erupt in a revolutionary destruction of the entire system. All this does not deny that there are indeed passages in Marx which describe only a relative impoverishment of the working class and a growth in their envy at those wealthier than they. The point, however, is that there is also another dominant strain in Marx's writings which forecasts and stresses an increasing absolute, real, objective impoverishment of the working class. Finally, there is a glaring inner contradiction at the heart of Marxian economics that is never resolved. If the capitalists suffer over time from a falling rate of profit, and workers suffer from increasing impoverishment, who is benefiting in the distribution of the economic pie? At least in the Ricardian system, the capitalists suffer from a falling rate of profit, and the workers are kept at brute subsistence level, but some group keeps grabbing all the social benefits, the parasitic landlords and their increasing absorption of the social product by land rent. But in the Marxian system, the landlords have disappeared, increasingly and rapidly assimilated into the capitalist class. So how can both mighty classes lose out under developing capitalism? 5. The Laws of Motion 3 Business Cycle Crises A final variant of Marx's attempt to demonstrate the inevitability of the proletarian revolution was closely related to the doctrine of absolute impoverishment, this variant, however, stressed not a steady secular trend toward growing impoverishment or an industrial reserve army, but rather increasingly destructive business cycle crises and depressions, marked by impoverishment and cyclical unemployment. We turn now to Marx's theory, or rather his various theories, of cycles and crises, for his writings contain several very different and incompatible theories. Perhaps Marx, in desperation, was willing to come up with a number of theories, hoping that one of them at least might stick. Under Consumptionism the underconsumption explanation of depression was Marx's dominant variant of cycle theory, as evidenced, for example, by his and Engels' repeated attacks on Say's law and on Ricardo's adherence to that law. 
The point, as elaborated particularly in Marx's Theories of Surplus Value, written between 1861 and 1863, is that as capitalist accumulation and production advances, it outstrips the ability of the exploited workers, who earn far less than the value of their product, to consume. The mass of workers cannot consume enough to buy the capitalist product, and the slack is not taken up by the capitalist exploiters, who are far more interested in saving and accumulating than in consuming. Hence, say is incorrect, and there is systemic general overproduction, with production outstripping the masses' ability to consume. As Marx repeatedly says, the majority of the people, the laboring population, can extend their consumption only within very narrow limits. Marx returns to this dominant under-consumptionist theme in Volume 3 of Capital. In capitalism, Marx writes, the consuming power of society is determined by antagonistic conditions of distribution, which reduce the consumption of the great mass of the population to a variable minimum within more or less narrow limits. Moreover, the consuming power is furthermore restricted by the tendency to accumulate, the greed for an expansion of capital and a production of surplus value on an enlarged scale. The market must, therefore, be continually extended. But to the extent that the productive power develops, it finds itself at variance with the narrow basis on which the conditions of consumption rest. Also in Volume 3 of Capital, Marx writes, The ultimate reason for all crises always remains the poverty and restricted consumption of the masses, in the face of the drive to develop the productive forces, as if only the absolute consumption of society set a limit to them. The most obvious and blatant problem with an under-consumptionist theory of economic crises is that it explains too much, for if the consumption of the masses is never enough to buy back the product and keep business profitable, why is there no permanent depression? Why are there booms as well as busts? Both Marx and Engels apparently sensed this problem, and hence saw the need for at least a supplementary theory. Thus, in Volume 3 of Capital, Marx, in addition to the quote above, conceded that there are at least temporary boom periods before crises, when wages rise and workers obtain a larger share of the product. Engels, too, in Anti-During, first states that large-scale industry, which hunts all over the world for new consumers, restricts the consumption of the masses at home to a starvation minimum, and thereby undermines its own internal market. But then, a bit later in the same work, Engels, after asserting that the underconsumption of the masses is therefore also a necessary condition of crises, admits the concept cannot explain why crises exist today while they did not exist at earlier periods. By the time that Engels wrote the preface to the first English edition of Volume One of Capital in 1886, however, the problem had been neatly resolved to his own satisfaction. 
while business cycles of boom and bust had indeed prevailed until 1867, he opined, the English economy was now satisfactorily bogged down in permanent depression. Whatever the subsidiary causes of the booms, they were now ended, and permanent depression would soon usher in the proletarian revolution. Amidst the sea of wreckage of self-assured Marxian predictions, this was one of the most absurdly and strikingly wrong. Thus Engels. The decennial cycle of stagnation, prosperity, overproduction, and crisis, ever recurrent from 1825 to 1867, seems indeed to have run its course, but only to land us in the slough of despond of a permanent and chronic depression. The side-four period of prosperity will not come. As often as we seem to perceive its heralding symptoms, so often do they vanish into air. Meanwhile, each succeeding winter brings up afresh the great question, what to do with the unemployed? But while the number of the unemployed keeps swelling from year to year, there is nobody to answer that question, and we can almost calculate the moment when the unemployed, losing patience, will take their own fate into their own hands. In the event, of course, prosperity came to England long before the proletarian revolution. In any case, underconsumption is a totally flawed theory, whether used to explain cyclical crises or permanent depressions. In the first place, savings do not leak out of the economy. They are spent on vitally important investments in resources and capital goods. More importantly, as in the case of every crazy theory, the price system quietly drops out of the picture, and we are left with such aggregative juggernauts as production and consumption facing each other. There is no such thing as overproduction. There is only too much produced for the price that consumers are willing to pay a price which, in crises, does not cover the costs incurred by businessmen. But once we recognize that, we must then also see that in order to bring production and consumption into balance, in order to eliminate the problem of supply or stock being greater than demand, all that need happen is for prices to fall. Let prices fall, and they will soon equilibrate supply and demand, and business losses will only be temporary. And this point leads the analyst to consider the next step. Why did businessmen, entrepreneurs with a sterling overall record in forecasting demand and costs, why this time did they bid up costs so excessively high that they suffer losses in trying to sell the product? In short, why did businessmen make this cluster of severe forecasting errors that mark the period of economic crisis? None of this, of course, could be considered by Marx and by the underconsumptionists who do not bother considering the price system. Moreover, Marx, like Smith and Ricardo before him, has no conception of the entrepreneur or of the function of entrepreneurship. Finally, it is well known that crises invariably begin not in the consumer goods industries that underconsumption would lead us to expect, but precisely in capital goods industries and in those industries farthest and most remote from the consumer. 
The problem, it would seem, correctly, is too much rather than too little consumption. The Falling Rate of Profit The second crisis theory, prominent in Volume 3 of Capital, focuses on the Marxian falling rate of profit. The incessant drive of capitalists to accumulate brings about a secular trend of the rate of profit to fall. Finally, when profit falls below a certain rate, the growth of capital ceases, and an economic crisis ensues. Just as capitalism leads to an overproduction of goods in relation to consumption, so too it creates an overaccumulation of capital. The cessation of capital investment leads to a recession in the capital goods industries, which then widens into a general depression. While this second explanation of economic crisis at least has the merit of focusing on capital goods industries rather than consumption, it is scarcely an improvement. In the first place, once again, the falling rate of profit seems to describe a law of secular decline. But why should it lead to a specific economic collapse, much less a cyclical series of booms and busts? Even if the profit rate falls, why should businessmen stop investing, especially all of a sudden? What is the mechanism to explain the sudden, sharp, upper turning point? Moreover, even if the profit rate falls, the admittedly increasing mass of saved capital might well increase the absolute amount of aggregate profits, so that even though the rate falls, the process may still stimulate a great deal of further investment. Furthermore, even if Marx could explain an upper turning point and a sharp crash, why should there ever be a revival? Here is a particularly shaky point in Marx. Capital decumulates greatly during the crisis, so that the capital denominator actually declines, and hence the rate of profit to total investment rises. This process can again create greater investment and another boom. The likelihood, however, that a depression will be steep enough to actually consume capital and also raise profit rates more than the alleged continuing tendency for the profit rate to fall is very low, and even if a recovery gets underway, why should a lusty boom ensue? There is finally no hint in Marx or Engels why these cycles or depressions are supposed to increase in intensity, universality, and depth over time, finally to result in permanent depression and revolution. All in all, the falling rate of profit strand of cycle theory is singularly shadowy and unconvincing. Disproportionality here, in the disproportionality theory of Marx, we return, in a deep sense, to where we, or rather Marx himself, began, to communism and the desire to eradicate the market and the division of labor. Woven into his discussions in Capital and Theories of Surplus Value, written between 1861 and 1863, is the view that cycles and crises inevitably stem from the market process. To Marx, the problem was endemic in the market economy, and particularly in the money or indirect exchange economy. 
Since the market allegedly had no coordinating mechanism, all production and exchange, according to Marx, is chaotic, discoordinated, a regime of what he called the anarchy of production. As Bober sums it up, This theory is concerned with the maladjustments and disproportionalities traced to the anarchy of competition, to the blundering, incoordinate moves of multitudes of individual capitalists, to the complexities of the many elements which must fit into each other in an enormously complex world, and which will do so by sheer accident, if not by planned design, and to the vagaries of wind and weather. Marx had a telling point against the Ricardians, the British classicists of his day. The world does not, indeed, bask happily in the never-never land of long-run equilibrium. But what Marx overlooked is precisely what the Ricardians overlooked. If they had shifted their focus out of the cloudland of long-run equilibrium and back to the real world of the market economy, they would have discovered a very different world. They would have seen what Turgot and the French and Italians and scholastics had seen. The real world of markets is not perfectly, but still harmoniously and dynamically coordinated by two crucial elements, a price system that is free to fluctuate to equate the changing forces of supply and demand, and entrepreneurs, who, in their continuing search for increased profits and avoidance of losses, perform this coordinating task. But by focusing on long-run equilibrium, the British classicists had eliminated both the real-world price system and the vital entrepreneurial role in the market economy, the successful anticipation of change in a changing and uncertain world. If there is no price system for the exchange of property titles to goods and services, and there are no capitalist entrepreneurs, then, indeed, production is in a state of anarchy. Marx also saw that discoordination might cause overaccumulation of capital, and wove this theme into the preceding variant, the falling rate of profit, in an attempt to explain cycles and crises. Some later economists, notably the Russian Marxist economist Tugan Baranovsky, celebrated these hints into what has been called a non-monetary over-investment theory of the business cycle. Marx saw that the monetary and credit system played an important role in cycles and crises. Credit is important in the centralization of capital— it encourages speculation, intensifies the crisis, and accelerates overproduction. But to emphasize bank credit as a fundamental cause of the cycle could have been fatal for Marx's attempt to pin the blame for cycles and crises on forces inherent within the capitalist market economy. And so it was necessary for him to repudiate any possible currency school emphases on the causal role of bank credit. The superficiality of political economy, Marx writes in Capital, shows itself in the fact that it looks upon the expansion and contraction of credit, which is a mere symptom of the periodic changes of the industrial cycle, as their cause. 
Despite his overt scorn for John Stuart Mill, Marx was thereby driven into implicit support for the Mill-Took banking school theory of the business cycle. As we have seen, the currency school writers themselves were forced into this view after the seeming failure of Peel's Act of 1844 to eradicate business cycles. While all banking school-type theorists on non-monetary disproportionality and overinvestment were obliged to admit that expansion of money and bank credit were necessary conditions to a cycle boom, they all proclaimed that credit cycles were only passive resultants of non-monetary cycles of over- and under-trading, or of speculation. Thus, million non-monetary cycle theory permeated the ranks of economists and encouraged economists, including Marx, to blame the capitalist market economy for the recurrence of business cycles. The insights of the vanished currency school, the realization that money and credit as a necessary condition was close to saying a cause— and the original insight that it takes bank credit expansion to distort the market's signals to entrepreneurs and create a boom-bust cycle remained buried, to be discovered or rediscovered by Ludwig von Mises in 1912. 6. Conclusion. The Marxian System. Thus Karl Marx created what seems to the superficial observer to be an impressive, integrated system of thought, explaining the economy, world history, and even the workings of the universe. In reality, he created a veritable tissue of fallacies. Every single nodal point of the theory is wrong and fallacious, and its integument, to use a good Marxian term, is a web of fallacy as well. The Marxian system lies in absolute tatters and ruin. The integument of Marxian theory has burst asunder long before its predicted bursting of the capitalist system. Far from being a structure of scientific laws, furthermore, the jerry-built structure was constructed and shored up in desperate service to the fanatical and crazed messianic goal of destruction of the division of labor, and indeed of man's very individuality, and to the apocalyptic creation of an allegedly inevitable collectivist world order, an atheized variant of a venerable Christian heresy. During the 1960s, messianic and romantic Marxists liked to make a sharp separation between the earlier lovable, idealistic, humanist Marx and the later mean, hardcore, pro-Stalinist, economist Marx. But we now know that there is no such division. There is only one Marx, whether early or late, once he adopted Marxism in the 1840s. There is even a good case for seeing one lifelong Marx, including his crazed demonic poems calling for universal destruction in his still earlier graduate school years at Berlin. In fact, the humanist Marx is scarcely a relief from the later economist. Quite the contrary. All Marxes in one were in service to his fanatical and destructive messianic vision of communism. 
A convincing case can be made, indeed, that the well-known horrors of twentieth-century communism, of Lenin, Stalin, Mao, and Pol Pot, can be considered the logical unfolding, the embodiment of the nineteenth-century vision of their master, Karl Marx. Chapter 13. The Marxian System Two: The Economics of Capitalism and Its Inevitable Demise. 1. The Labor Theory of Value We have seen that for the latter half of his life, Karl Marx, exiled in Britain far from the political or possible revolutionary fray, spent the last years of his life searching for the mechanism by which the economics of capitalism would inevitably and ineluctably give rise to its own revolutionary overthrow. In short, the mechanism by which the capitalist class would be expropriated by the revolutionary proletariat, which would then proceed to usher in the various stages of communism. Marx found a crucial key to this mechanism in Ricardo's labor theory of value and in the Ricardian socialist thesis that labor is the sole determinant of value, with capital's share, or profits, being the surplus value extracted by the capitalist from labor's created product. Capital was merely frozen labor, so that any possible contribution to the product devolves on labor as well. But in order to arrive at the labor or quantity of labor hours theory of value, Marx, in his systematic work Capital, had to dispose of other subjective claimants to determining value. He also had to demonstrate that value was somehow objectively embodied in the product, a material good, of course, since Marx, with Smith, had dismissed immaterial services as unproductive. He attempted to perform this feat at the very beginning of Volume 1 of Capital, and how he did it is highly instructive. Marx begins Capital by concentrating on the commodity, an object, as we have seen, a material substance, which has utility for satisfying human wants. In this way, like Ricardo, he leaves immaterial services out of the picture, and also omits studying the value of non-reproducible products, which have no ongoing costs of production. Like Ricardo, Marx also begins with the necessity of utility. But, like his master, he quickly dismisses this basic fact as of little or no use in explaining exchange value, the proportion in which commodities exchange for one another on the market. As in Smith and Ricardo, therefore, use value and exchange value, or price, of commodities are sundered from each other. How, then, explain exchange value? How, in short, explain the proportions by which commodities exchange for each other on the market? Marx adds that, superficially, it seems that exchange values are relative, that they fluctuate in relation to each other, and that therefore there is nothing objectively intrinsic in the product that determines its value. Marx then sets out to correct this alleged error. Here is the crucial paragraph. Let us take two commodities, for example, corn and iron. 
The proportions in which they are exchangeable, whatever these proportions may be, can always be represented by an equation in which a given quantity of corn is equated to some quantity of iron. For example, one-quarter corn equals X hundredweight of iron. What does this equation tell us? It tells us that in two different things, in one quarter of corn and X hundredweight of iron, there exists in equal quantities something common of both. The two things must therefore be equal to a third, which in itself is neither the one nor the other. Each of them, so far as it is exchange value, must therefore be reducible to this third, of which thing they represent a greater or less quantity. Thus Marx inserts his crucial error at the very beginning of his system. The fact that two commodities exchange for each other in some proportion does not mean that they are therefore equal in value and can be represented by an equation. As we have learned ever since Bourdon and the Scholastics, two things exchange for each other only because they are unequal in value to the two participants in the exchange. A gives up X to B in exchange for Y because A prefers Y to X, and B, on the contrary, prefers X to Y. An equals sign falsifies the essential picture. And if the two commodities, X and Y, were really equal in value in the sight of the two exchangers, why in the world did either of them take the time and trouble to make the exchange? Marx's concentration on the commodity threw him off from the very start. For the focus should not have been on the thing, the material object, but in the individuals, the actors, doing the exchanging, and deciding whether or not to make the trade. If there is no equality in value, then there is clearly no third something to which these values must be equal. Marx compounds his original error with another assuming that if there were an equality of value, there is therefore necessarily some third tangible thing to which they must be equal, and by which they can be measured. There is no warrant for this leap from equality of value to measurement of an objective third entity. The implicit and fallacious assumption is that value is an objective entity like weight or length, which can be scientifically measured against some third external standard. Having made two egregious and fatal mistakes in one paragraph, Marx presses on inexorably to his conclusion— emphasizing by mere assertion that utility can have nothing whatever to do with exchange values, a point crucial to his case. He claims that use values have nothing to do with exchange values or prices. This means that all real attributes of goods, their natures, their varying qualities, etc., are abstracted from and can have nothing to do with their values, by tossing out all real-world properties from the discussion, Marx is perforce left with goods as the embodiment of pure, abstract, undifferentiated labor hours, the quantity of allegedly homogeneous labor hours embodied in the product. 
Marx, of course, sees that there are great problems with this approach. What about the scholastic thrust? Is the market expected to cover the costs, the enormous number of labor hours needed to make a product in an obsolete way? If a book is printed or hand-scripted, is the market going to cover the payment for the enormous number of labor hours needed in the hand-copying process? Is the market expected to pay the labor costs of carrying goods across land as compared to shipping them by sea? Marx's way of disposing of these awkward questions was to create the concept of socially necessary labor time. The determinant of the value of a good is not any old labor time spent on or embodied in its production, but only labor time that is socially necessary. But this is a cop-out and evades the issue by begging the entire question. Market value is determined only by the quantity of socially necessary labor time. But what is socially necessary? Whatever the market decides. So a crucial ingredient of explaining market value is market decisions, market values themselves. To elaborate further, Marx defines labor time socially necessary as that required to produce an article under the normal conditions of production and with the average degree of skill and intensity prevalent at the time. This brings up a corollary problem: how to meld a myriad of different qualities and skills of labor into one homogeneous abstract labor hour. Here, taking up a hint from Ricardo, Marx inserts the concepts of average and normal. It all averages out. But how is this average obtained? It is done by weights with higher quality, unusually productive labor weighted more heavily in quantity labor time units than is the labor of an unskilled worker. But who decides the weights? Once again, Marx's crucial question-begging methodology comes into play. For Marx acknowledges that it is the market, its relative prices and wages, which determines the weights. That is, which labor is more productive or higher in quality and in what degree than some other forms of labor. So market values, prices, and productivities are being used to try to explain the determinants of those same values and prices. Two, profit rates and surplus value. Marx proceeds with his model in a Ricardian socialist manner. In contrast to Ricardo, however, land and rent are simply assimilated into capital, since man's labor allegedly created all land anyway, and since the importance of land and feudalism allegedly disappears as capitalism proceeds on its way. Values and prices of land, therefore, need not be treated or explained. There are then two mighty classes under capitalism: the homogeneous laborers, the proletariat, and the capitalists. As in Smith and Ricardo, there are, of course, no entrepreneurs. All is in slowly moving, long-run equilibrium. But the values of goods are the sole creation of quantities of labor hours. 
capitalists, by some sort of coercion, by their imposed set of property relations, extract by force a profit from the product of the exploited workers. This profit is surplus value, the value seized by capitalists out of total value produced. Profit for Marx is derived only from exploiting labor. It is the surplus value over the wages necessary for the subsistence of labor. Profits, on the other hand, have nothing to do with the amount of capital invested, for capital is only dead matter, stored or frozen labor, and can therefore no longer be exploited to provide current profits. Only living labor, then, can be used to provide profit for the capitalist. But if the amount of profit is extracted solely from labor, this means that any accumulation of capital will necessarily reduce the rate of profit earned by the capitalist. Thus, suppose no capital, or in Marxian terms, constant capital is used, and investment is made solely in the form of variable capital used to pay wages. Suppose that profits from production of the good are $100, and total variable capital or wage payment is $1,000. In that case, the profit rate is 10%. On the other hand, suppose that there is investment in capital goods amounting to, say, another $1,000. Total capital investment is then $2,000, but since profits are only derived from labor, they are still the same $100, so that the profit rate has now fallen to 5%. What determines wages, the amount grudgingly accorded to the workers by the capitalist class? Here Malthus and the iron law of wages make their vital appearance, determining wages at all times at the means of subsistence. Marx, of course, hastens to clear his future communist utopia from any Malthusian problems by asserting that Malthus and the iron law only hold sway under capitalism and would certainly not apply under communism. It must be emphasized that the iron law is crucial to Marx's entire system. For Marx, the value and price of every good is determined by its cost, that is, the quantity of labor hours embodied in its production. Marx believed that on the market, capitalists pay workers the value of their labor power, by which he meant, of course, not their productivity or marginal productivity, but the cost of producing and maintaining the labor, that is, the cost or the quantity of labor hours needed to produce the laborer's means of subsistence. Professor Conway, in his generally excellent survey and critique of Marxism, claims that Marx's theory of surplus value does not require the iron law of wages, since the capitalists could still extract some surplus value even if wages were higher than the subsistence wage. Very true except that then wages in the Marxian system would be undetermined, and indeed there would be no reason to assume that surplus value exists at all, or that it is large enough to have any importance in the economy. 
Besides, if wages are not locked into the bare means of subsistence, then the plight of the workers under capitalism might not be so pitiable after all. And what if there were then very little substance to spur the workers into the revolutionary overthrow of capitalism that Marx insisted was inevitable? Thus, in the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels proclaimed emphatically that the average wage is always the minimum wage, that is, that quantum of the means of subsistence, Lebensmittel, which is absolutely requisite, notwendig, to keep the laborer in bare existence as a laborer. What, therefore, the wage-laborer appropriates by means of his labor merely suffices to prolong and reproduce a bare existence. And Engels, in his late work, Ante During, 1878, asserts that large-scale industry restricts the consumption of the masses at home to a starvation minimum. There are great problems in Marx's model, his theory implies that since profits are only derived from the exploitation of labor, profit rates are necessarily lower in heavily capitalized than in labor-intensive industries. But everyone, including Marx, is forced to acknowledge that this manifestly does not hold true on the market. The tendency on the market, as Smith and Ricardo well knew, is for rates of profit to tend toward equality in all industries. But how so, if profit rates are necessarily and systematically higher in the labor-intensive industries? Here is surely the most glaring single hole in the Marxian model— Marx acknowledged that in the real world profit rates clearly tend toward equality, or, as Marx termed it, an average rate of profit, and that real prices or exchange values in capitalist markets therefore do not exchange at their Marxian quantity of labor values. Marx admitted this crucial problem and promised that he could solve the problem successfully in a later volume of Capital. He struggled with this problem for the rest of his life, and never solved it. Perhaps one of the main reasons that he stopped working early on Capital, and never published the later volumes. In the first edition of his great History of the Theories of Capital and Interest, published in 1884, the year after Marx's death, the outstanding Austrian theorist Eugen von Böhm-Bawerk, in his critique of Marx, pointed out that Marx himself became aware of the fact that there was a contradiction here, and found it necessary for the sake of his solution to promise to deal with it later on. But the promise was never kept and, indeed, could not be kept. Böhm-Bawerk later noted that the growing legion of Marxian adepts continued to maintain their faith that the master would eventually come up with a solution to this grave and apparently ineradicable flaw in the Marxian system. Then, in the preface to Marx's posthumous second volume of Capital, Friedrich Engels teasingly and rather childishly declared that in a forthcoming volume Marx would solve the famous profit rate and value problem, and invited all Marxian and other economists to a kind of prize essay contest to guess how Marx was going to solve this seemingly insoluble contradiction. 
In the ensuing nine years until the publication of the climactic Volume 3 of Capital, a surprisingly large number of economists tried their hands at this little game. In the preface to the long-awaited Volume 3, published in 1894, a year before his own death, Engels was able to demonstrate triumphantly that none of these economists had come close to winning the prize. Thus Engels was far less cautious than Marx in being willing to go public and trumpet a solution that Marx had apparently not felt worthy of being published. Volume 3 was subjected to detailed, withering, thoroughgoing demolition two years later by Bermba-Werk in his extensive review essay, Karl Marx and the Close of His System. A century later, Bermba-Werk's devastating refutation of the Volume 3 solution, and therefore the Marxian system, remains definitive. It swept the boards in professional economics and has remained dominant ever since, successfully inoculating economists, at least, against the Marxian virus and certainly against the labor theory of value. Unfortunately, Bermba-Werk's point was too technical to have much impact outside the ranks of economists, and since then, Marxism has held its greatest attraction in the ranks of sociologists, historians, the literati, and others who tend to be economically ignorant. Bermba-Werk, in sum, posed the grave inner contradiction of Marxian theory plainly and starkly. Marx claimed that goods exchanged on the market in proportion to the quantities of labor embodied in them, that is, that their values are determined by the quantity of labor hours needed to produce them, and yet also conceded that the rates of profit on all goods tended to be equal. And yet, if the first clause is true, the rates of profit would be systematically lower in proportion to the intensity of capital investment, and higher in proportion to their labor intensiveness of production. Marx promised to resolve this insoluble contradiction in Volume 3 and to reconcile these two fundamentally contradictory propositions. In Karl Marx and the close of his system, Bermba-Werk demonstrated that Marx's proffered solution was a sham, and that actually what Marx did was to throw in the towel and admit that on the capitalist market, profit rates were equal, and therefore that prices were not proportional to or determined by the quantity of labor hours in the production of goods. Instead, Marx in effect embraced standard Ricardian theory and admitted that prices were actually determined by the costs, or in his terminology, prices of production, plus the average rate of profit. In this way, while pretending to have saved his theory by talking grandly about competition transforming values into prices of production, Marx had actually abandoned the labor theory of value altogether, and had therefore scuttled his entire system. Bermba-Werk then goes into a systematic critique of various Marxian arguments attempting to save the phenomenon, including nonsense about total value being equal to total prices of all products. 
It is instructive to note the reaction of Marxists to Volume 3 and to Bermbaverk's exposure and demolition of their system's grave inner contradictions. Too often they reacted in the manner of religious cultists and not honest scientists. That is, when their system is caught in egregious fallacies or contradictions, or makes grossly faulty predictions, cultists save their theory by changing the terms of the argument. That is, they assert that the theory said something quite different, or that the prediction had really been different. Similarly, the extremely popular Millerite movement in the early 1840s had confidently forecast the exact date of Jesus' second advent in 1843. When Jesus did not arrive on the predicted date, the Millerites characteristically claimed a slight error in their calculations and postponed the happy date for another few months. When Jesus failed to arrive once more, most Millerites dispersed, but some of the hardcore faithful changed the terms of the argument by insisting that Jesus had indeed arrived on the expected date, but that his advent was invisible, the more visible second part of the second coming to arrive at some future date. This latter group became the Seventh-day Adventists. And so the fallback position of the Marxian apologists was the outrageously false claim that Marx never meant his labor-determined values to determine, or in any way affect, market prices. Marx, they asserted loftily, had no interest in such petty matters as market price. His labor-quantity-created values were simply embodied mystically into market commodities, presumably then to have no relevance whatever to the real world of market capitalism. Thus Paul Sweezy asserted that Marx was not dealing with prices at all, but really in what today might be called economic sociology. G. D. H. Cole tried to claim in his What Marx Really Meant that for Marx, in contrast to other economists, value had nothing to do with determining prices, but was essentially, by definition, the quantity of labor hours embodied in a product. Alexander Gray leveled a witty and devastating critique of Cole. But the identity of value and embodied labor was surely something that Marx thought he had proved, and which therefore required proof in the opening pages of Capital. If the identity of value and labor is a matter of definition and assumption, then at least we know the meaning Marx attaches to value. But in that case, the pretended proof in the opening chapter is mere eyewash, since one states, but does not prove, definitions. Also, in that case, it is to be feared that the whole of capital, resting on an arbitrary definition which implies the conclusion to be reached, is an example of wandering vainly in a circle, even more than the most critical critics had thought possible. If, on the other hand, the identity of value and labor is a matter of proof and not of definition, we are still left to grope for the meaning Marx attaches to value. While official Marxists have all taken this escape hatch, saving the labor theory of value by rendering it irrelevant, the only full-scale Marxist attempt to rebut Bermbaverk was that of the Austrian Marxist Rudolf Hilferding, 
1877-1941, Böhm-Bawerk's Critique of Marx, published in 1904, with the English translation being published in 1920. Hilferding's apologetics, taking the fallback line that Marx never meant values to determine prices, is a clumsy and garbled work. It is interesting that Hilferding's friend and fellow leading Austro-Marxist theoretician Otto Bauer dismissed Hilferding as never having truly understood the nature of the problem. Bauer enrolled in Böhm-Bawerk's great seminar at the University of Vienna in order to learn enough to be able to refute Böhm-Bawerk's celebrated critique. In the end, Bauer gave up the task, virtually admitting that the Marxian labor theory of value was indefensible. Most modern Marxist scholars hold the labor theory of value to be an embarrassment, and sophisticated Marxists have dropped it altogether, unfortunately without also giving up the system of which it is a crucial and necessary part. A curious case of Marxist apologetics is a book widely and extravagantly touted as the definitive critique of Marxism. In his Marxism, Professor Thomas Sowell takes the Hilferding line and adds further errors of his own. Thus he berates Böhm-Bawerk for having repeatedly misunderstood Marx, when the meticulous Böhm-Bawerk understood Marx all too well, and Sowell follows Hilferding in erroneously claiming that Böhm-Bawerk and other critics wrongly held that Marx identified values with prices. On the contrary, Böhm-Bawerk and the others were fully aware that labor-created values were supposed to determine, but not be the same as, exchange values, or prices. It is also ironic that an author who makes a big point of castigating well-known economists who write on Marxian economics without once citing Marx, should yet make the egregious and pompous claim that Marx referred nowhere to a theory of value, despite a numerous and undocumented interpretive literature to the contrary. As a reviewer of Soul points out, such a reference by Marx can easily be found in Volume 3 of Capital. Although orthodox Marxists, of course, do not acknowledge it, the Hilferding fallback position, while indeed saving the equalization of profit in the real world, does so at the grave cost of abandoning the labor theory of value, or, what is the same, leaving it as an empty and meaningless shell. But if there is no labor theory of value, then there is no surplus value, no exploitation, and no reason for the proletariat to rebel against a world in which their product is not being systematically confiscated by the capitalist class. The most interesting and flamboyant case of an ardent Marxist who behaved honorably when confronted with the stark contradiction between Volumes 1 and 3 of Capital was the Italian economist Achille Loria, 1857-1943. For Loria, the first volume of Capital had been a masterpiece, wherein all is great, all alike incomparable and wonderful. Yet to Loria, Volume 3 was a grievous death-blow to Marx's own system. Loria, in fact, did not need to wait for Böhm-Bawerk's critique. 
In his own review of Volume 3, Loria attacked the book as a mystification instead of a solution. Loria denounced the book as the Russian campaign, a la Napoleon, of the Marxian system, its complete theoretical bankruptcy, a scientific suicide, and the most explicit surrender of his own teaching. Let Alexander Gray have the perceptive and hilarious last word on Marx's value theory. To witness Burmba Verk or Mr. H. W. B. Joseph carving up Marx is but a pedestrian pleasure, for these are but pedestrian writers, who are so pedestrian as to clutch at the plain meaning of words, not realizing that what Marx really meant, coal, has no necessary connection with what Marx undeniably said. To witness Marx surrounded by his friends is, however, a joy of an entirely different order for it is fairly clear that none of them really knows what Marx really meant. They are even in considerable doubt as to what he was talking about. There are hints that Marx himself did not know what he was doing. In particular, there is no one to tell us what Marx thought he meant by value, and indeed what all these conjectures reveal is somewhat astounding, and one would like to think unique. Capital is, in one sense, a three-volume treatise, expounding a theory of value and its manifold applications. Yet Marx never condescends to say what he means by value, which accordingly is what anyone cares to make it as he follows the unfolding scroll from 1867 to 1894. Nor does anyone know to what world all this applies. Is it to the world in which Marx wrote? or to an abstract, pure capitalist world existing ideally in the imagination and nowhere else? Or, odd as the suggestion may appear, was Marx, probably unconsciously, thinking in terms of medieval conditions? Wilbrandt? No one knows. Are we concerned with Wissenschaft, slogans, myths, or incantations? Marx, it has been said, was a prophet and perhaps this suggestion provides the best approach. One does not apply to Jeremiah and Ezekiel the tests to which less inspired men are subjected. Perhaps the mistake the world and most of the critics have made is just that they have not sufficiently regarded Marx as a prophet, a man above logic, uttering cryptic and incomprehensible words, which every man may interpret as he chooses. 3. The Laws of Motion 1. The Accumulation and Centralization of Capital Thus Karl Marx had established, to his own satisfaction at least, the labor theory of value and the reconciliation of the theory with the tendency of profit rates toward equality. But Marx was not particularly interested in explanatory laws for the workings of the capitalist system. He was interested in pressing on to what he called the laws of motion, a revealingly mechanistic term of the capitalist system, that is, in its inevitable march towards the victory of revolutionary communism, a march that would proceed with the inexorability of the laws of nature. How and where, then, was capitalism bound to move? One crucial aspect of the inevitable doom of capitalism is the inescapable law of the falling rate of profit. 
The extant uniform equilibrium rate, according to Marx, was doomed to keep falling. Both Smith and Ricardo had theories of a falling rate of profit, each fallacious, and each arrived at in completely different ways. To Smith, the rate of profit or interest is determined by the stock of capital. The greater the amount of capital accumulated, the lower the profit rate. Ricardo, in contrast, was worried about the increasing squeeze of the economy by the landlords as inexorable population growth puts ever more inferior lands under cultivation. Labor hours required for production are raised, thereby raising both money wages and rents, hence eating increasingly into profits. Marx's falling rate of profit follows from the accumulation of capital over time, but in a way different from Smith's or Ricardo's. As we have seen, for Marx, capital is dead weight and provides no profit to the capitalist. All his profit comes from the exploitation of living labor, and therefore amassing more capital necessarily lowers his rate of profit, the ratio of his total profit divided by his total capital invested. And since the hallmark of capitalist development is continuing accumulation of capital, this means that capitalism is doomed to ever-falling rates of profit. But, one may well ask, if the accumulation of capital necessarily slashes profits, why do capitalists, who are clearly motivated by a search for higher profits, rather than lower profits, insist on continuing to accumulate? Why do they persist in cutting their own throats? One Marxian answer to this riddle is competition, and Leninists in particular like to explain the allegedly later development of monopoly capitalism and of imperialism as attempts by capitalists to form cartels or find investment outlets abroad as attempts to stave off the dread consequences of competition. But the mere citation of competition is scarcely an adequate answer. It is true, for example, that a new discovery or a new industry will cause very high profits at the beginning, and that in the pursuit of these profits new competing firms will eventually bid down the rate of profit in the industry. But in the short run at least, and before equilibrium arrives, these capitalists are still making high and above normal profits. But, in contrast, the Marxian businessman who accumulates capital loses profits at each step of the way, and not simply in the long run. It is therefore difficult to see why any one capitalist at any step of the way would ever be tempted to join in the accumulative parade. Marx's ultimate answer to this riddle is deceptively simple— Capitalists accumulate, despite the immediate and future fall in their profits, because, well, they have an irresistible, irrational urge or instinct to do so. This, of course, is no explanation at all. It abandons any genuine explanation under the cloak of a high-sounding but ultimately meaningless label, such as drive or instinct. It makes the same error as the legendary attempt to explain why opium puts people to sleep by solemnly intoning that opium has dormitive power. 
Note the leitmotif of irrationality in Marx's analysis of why capitalists accumulate in Volume 1 of Capital. Accumulate, accumulate, that is Moses and the prophets. Therefore, save, save, that is, reconvert the greatest possible of surplus value or surplus product into capital. Accumulation for accumulation's sake, production for production's sake not for the sake of profits. And a similar theme appears in Marx's earlier essay, Wage, Labor, and Capital. That is the law which again and again throws bourgeois production out of its old course and which compels capital to intensify the productive forces of labor, because it has intensified them. The law which gives capital no rest and continually whispers in its ear, Go on! go on. There was, of course, another way by which Marx and the Marxists could salvage the rationality of the accumulation of capital, and that was to take the fallback Hilferding route and abandon the labor theory as a doctrine relevant to the real world. Marx indeed took this road, as well as claiming a mystical urge to accumulate for its own sake, in this manifestation, or face, of Marx, capitalist innovators do indeed make an initially high profit above the uniform average rate prevailing in the market. These pioneers make high surplus profits, followed by imitators and competitors, until the profit rate is eventually driven down to the equilibrium, or average, rate. All well and good and in this variant at least, reality again wins out. However, once again, the price of acknowledging reality is prohibitive, for if this sort of thing happens habitually on the market, why does the rate of profit have to fall at all, much less present us with an inexorable continuing tendency? Once again, as in the Bermba-Werk-Hilferding imbroglio, Marxists can only embrace reality by abandoning the Marxian system. Unfortunately, they, of course, do not acknowledge this surrender and continue to proclaim that reality has only required a slight adjustment to the true doctrine. Whichever course the Marxists take, it is crucial for them to salvage the continuing accumulation of capital, since it is through such accumulation that increased productivity and particularly technological innovations take place and are instituted in the economy. And we must remember that it is through technological innovation that capitalists dig their own grave, for the capitalist system and capitalist relations become the fetters that block technological development. Some technological method that capitalism cannot encompass, which Marx late in life thought would be electricity, would provide the spark, the necessary and sufficient base for the inevitable overthrow of capitalism and the seizing power by the final historical class, the proletariat. To Marx, two consequences followed necessarily from the alleged tendency to the accumulation of capital and the advance of technology. The first is the concentration of capital, by which Marx meant the inexorable tendency of each firm to grow ever larger in size, for the scale of production to enlarge. Certainly there is a great amount of expansion of scale of plant and firm in the modern world, 
On the other hand, the law is scarcely apodictic. Why may not the accumulation of capital be reflected in a growth in the number of firms, rather than merely in increasing the size of each? And while many industrial processes grow by increasing the optimal scale, others flourish by being relatively small and flexible in size. Henry Ford's massive automobile factories were economic and profitable for a while, but later, by the 1920s, they inevitably led to severe losses, because such massive investment proved inflexible in meeting changes in the nature and form of consumer demand. And while automobile plants are large-sized, automobile parts plants and firms are typically small in size. Furthermore, new and small firms have typically outcompeted large behemoths in introducing inventions and technological innovations, the very area that most interested Marx. Large-scale firms tend to become bureaucratic, hidebound and mired in intellectual and financial vested interests in existing plants and ways of production. Time after time, only new small firms can carry out the cutting edge of technological innovation. If Marx's law of the concentration of capital is by no means certain, then his next thesis, the law of the centralization of capital, is in even shakier shape. Here, Marx asserted an inevitable law by which smaller firms in each industry go to the wall and are absorbed in fewer and fewer giant firms. In short, a tendency toward the monopolization of industry. For one reason, competition always ends in the ruin of many small capitalists, whose capitals partly pass into the hands of their conquerors and partly vanish completely. For a second reason for his law, Marx pointed to the recent invention of the joint stock company or corporation and its ability to concentrate masses of small capital into one organization. But this process of centralization or monopolization can be and has been counteracted by such developments as the growth of new processes, as we have seen above, and by the spread of geographical competition. Thus, in addition to small innovators we have mentioned, the alleged dominance of the big three automobile firms in the United States has been eradicated by the growth of foreign, Japanese, West German, etc., competition. Furthermore, while small family retail groceries were superseded, the alleged monopolization of the retail grocery business by A&P in the 1930s was pulverized by the growth of the new technology of supermarkets. In the meanwhile, the small groceries have returned in the new form of convenience or 24-hour stores. In New York City in recent years, larger supermarkets have been outcompeted in the quality and variety of fruit and vegetables by small 24-hour Korean-American family stores. In late 19th and early 20th century America, the standard oil monopoly of petroleum refining was rocked by its bureaucratic failure to perceive that the new Texas and Oklahoma oil fields were the wave of the future in crude oil, and by its backwardness in seeing that kerosene would rapidly be giving way to gasoline as the dominant petroleum product. 
This muscle-bound failure left room for small and vigorous new entrepreneurs such as Gulf and Texaco to leap in and eliminate Standard's dominance in oil. A final instructive example of excessive scale of firm and unprofitable monopoly was the result of the vast merger boom of 1899 to 1901, in which literally scores of industries, following the lure of monopoly profits, merged into one monopoly firm and almost invariably lost heavily and were forced to give way to strenuous multi-firm competition. Thus, no one can predict which way the winds of competition, of creation and decline, of innovation and decay, will blow. Certainly one of the tendencies of capitalism is a greater variety and spectrum of quality of product, and this tendency promotes decentralization rather than Marxian centralization. Suffice it to say that there is no evidence, despite the numerous attempts of the federal government to give artificial impetus to centralization, that American industry is any more centralized now than it was at the turn of the 20th century. Finally, there is another side to the rise of corporations that Marx naturally leaves out. The very instrument by which the joint stock company can raise otherwise unavailable masses of capital has transformed the economy from one of a small number of capitalists to a modern world in which every person, be he or she ever so small, can and does become a capitalist. That is, virtually everyone owns a few shares of stock, or owns shares of pension funds invested in stocks or bonds. Every man a capitalist is, in today's world, a pervasive condition rather than a hopeful slogan for the future. Stressing this point leaves one subject to ridicule by Marxists and left liberals, who point out, obviously enough, that an individual capitalist owning a few shares of stock exerts little power in the corporate world. But such ridicule is ignorant and misplaced, since the point is that in this sense, stockholders are like consumers. The individual consumer has little say over the types and amounts of goods and services produced, but the mass of consumers together exert total economic power. Similarly, the man who owns one share of stock may have little say in corporate decisions, but the disaffection of even a relatively small minority could have costly consequences for the large shareholders if the disaffected sell their stock and send the values of shares plummeting. Large stockholders will exert direct control of a corporation, but far more indirect power lies in the hands of the mass of small shareholders, just as the ultimate economic power over each firm is wielded by the mass of consumers in their decisions on whether and how much to buy of the firm's product. To return to Marx and his laws of concentration and centralization of capital, we are now beginning to see the lineaments of why, for Marx, capitalism is inevitably rushing to its appointed doom. First, of course, Marx must rely on his absurd monolithic two-class model, all of society being increasingly squeezed into two uniform classes, each with common interests, the capitalists and the proletariat. 
But the law of the centralization of capital means that the ranks of the capitalists are continually diminishing, as we have seen, running in the teeth of the virtual universalization of the ranks of capitalists from the development of capital markets and corporations. Indeed, the ever smaller number of ever wealthier and more powerful capitalists succeed by expropriating their fellow capitalists and driving them downward into the ranks of the proletariat. Since in Marx's two-class schema, there is no other place for them to go. Before even bringing the workers themselves into the picture, we can see that the ranks of the capitalists, as they dwindle, necessarily become more beleaguered. The genuine absurdity of this picture was unwittingly revealed by the German Marxist Karl Kautsky, dubbed by Engels in apostolic succession the next pope of the Marxian movement. Kautsky simplistically pursued the logic of his master. As Kautsky summed up this process in his book on the Erfurt program, Capitalist production tends to unite the means of production, which have become the monopoly of the capitalist class, into fewer hands. This evolution finally makes all the means of production of a nation, indeed of the whole world economy, the private property of a single individual or company, which disposes of them arbitrarily. The whole economy will be drawn into one colossal undertaking, in which everything has to serve one master. In capitalist society, private ownership in the means of production ends with all except one person being propertyless. It thus leads to its own abolition, to the lack of property by all, and the enslavement of all. And what is more, we are advancing toward this state of affairs more rapidly than most people believe. It's as if Kautsky can now glimpse a bit of the absurdity of the position into which the logic of the Marxian system has placed him. Lest we be tempted to sit back and wait for the one goldfinger worth umpteen quadrillion dollars who holds the entire world of impoverished slaves in his thrall, Kautsky hastens to assure us that the world will not have to wait for the entire process to work itself out. Instead, the mere approach to this condition must increase the sufferings, conflicts, and contradictions in society to such an extent that they become intolerable, and society bursts its bounds and falls to pieces. Kautsky, however, did not succeed in drawing back before inadvertently revealing how preposterous the Marxian model really is. 9. Bastiat and Laissez-Faire in America Frédéric Bastiat's writings found a receptive climate in laissez-faire-oriented United States, this was particularly true of the distinguished political and social scientist Francis Lieber, 1800-1872, a young Prussian scholar who had fled a central Europe inhospitable to German nationalism. In 1835, Lieber succeeded the Jeffersonian Thomas Cooper as professor of political economy and history at the University of South Carolina, Lieber's two-volume Manual of Political Ethics, 1838 and 1839, was a comprehensive defense of the absolute rights of private property, as well as its corollary, the right of free exchange of that property. 
Man yearns, said Lieber, to see his individuality represented and reflected in the acts of his exertions, in property. Property, noted Lieber, existed before society and the state, and the state's function is to defend property rights, the unrestricted right of exchange, accumulations, and bequest from attack. The role of the independent judiciary, an institution created in the United States, was to be a guardian over private property, and to do so by applying the common law, a body of rules of action grown up spontaneously and independently of direct legislative or executive action. In 1856, Lieber acquired the Chair of History and Political Science, formerly Chair of Political Economy and History at Columbia University in New York City. In his inaugural address at Columbia, Lieber delivered a peon to free exchange, which is fundamental to civilized life. Lieber happily taught political economy from the text of Say's treatise, and argued that economics teaches the idea of the natural, simple, and uninterrupted state of things in which man is allowed to apply his means as best he thinks. So devoted was Lieber to freedom of trade that he believed that the time would soon come when nations would include free trade in their bills of rights. Indeed, Lieber wrote the introduction to the first English translation of Bastiat's Sophisms of Political Economy in 1848. That translation had been made by Lieber's friend, Louisa Chivas McCord, 1810-1879, daughter of the former head of the Bank of the United States, Langdon Chivas, and wife of Colonel David McCord, a protege of Thomas Cooper and a South Carolina banker, planter, attorney, and newspaper publisher. A devoted admirer of Bastiat, Mrs. McCord also wrote journal articles denouncing socialism and communism. But the two outstanding followers of Frederic Bastiat in the United States were Francis Amasa Walker, 1799-1875, and his close friend and younger New Englander, the Reverend Arthur Latham Perry, 1830-1905. Amasa Walker was the son of a blacksmith, who soon rose to become a successful shoe manufacturer in Boston, as well as a railroad promoter. His earliest economic interest was in money and banking, where he became an ardent Jacksonian. Even though a bank director, Walker endorsed the currency principle and fervently advocated 100% gold money, with banknotes banned from going beyond the specie in the vaults of the banks. In addition, most notes, especially small denominations, were to be gradually eliminated. Bank credit, Walker pointed out, creates inflation and boom-bust cycles, as the banks face an outflow of gold abroad and are forced to contract their credit and banknotes. Walker also realized that gold discoveries need not create crises and panic, since the gold could make possible a more rapid achievement of 100% specie money. Amasa Walker retired from industrial activity in 1840 at the age of 41, and from then on devoted himself to economics and to political activity. 
He lectured on economics at Oberlin and Amherst, and from 1853 to 1860 was an examiner in political economy at Harvard. Walker wrote a number of essays for the New York financial organ Merchants Magazine, and in 1857 published a book on money and banking, The Nature and Uses of Money. He also served in the Massachusetts legislature and as Secretary of the State of Massachusetts. Walker, by then a lecturer at Amherst College, published at the end of the Civil War a scintillating general treatise on economics, The Science of Wealth, a Manual of Political Economy, Boston Little Brown, 1866, which incorporated his monetary views into a general treatise on laissez-faire. The book was immensely popular, at home and abroad, going into eight editions in the next eight years. Walker's money and banking views were the centerpiece of his book. He took the rare position of advocating a system of free banking within a firm matrix of legally required 100% reserve. Walker wrote, Much has been said of the desirableness of free banking, of the propriety and rightfulness of allowing any person who chooses to carry on banking as freely as farming or any other branch of business, there can be no doubt. But it is not, and can never be, expedient or right to authorize by law the universal manufacture of currency. When only notes equivalent to certificates of so much coin are issued, banking may be as free as brokerage. The only thing to be secured would be that no issues should be made except upon specie in hand. In his general economics, Walker emphasized catalactic analysis and employed the concepts of wealth and value squarely in the Bastiat tradition. In fact, Walker heaped a great deal of praise on Bastiat's theory of value and proceeded to include several pages of quotes and examples from Bastiat's harmonies. In addition, Walker continued in the French tradition of stressing the entrepreneur as a force in production very different from that of the pure capitalist. But unquestionably the outstanding disciple of Bastiat in the United States was Arthur Latham Perry. Perry, a graduate of Williams College in 1852, almost immediately accepted the position in which he would spend the bulk of his life teaching history, political economy, and German at his alma mater. Perry had been introduced to Bastiat's works by his friend Amasa Walker, and he reported that I had scarcely read a dozen pages in that remarkable book, Bastiat's Harmonies of Political Economy, when the field of the science, in all its outlines and landmarks, lay before my mind just as it does today, 1883. From that time, political economy has been to me a new science, and that I experience then and thereafter a sense of having found something. In the spring of 1864, Perry wrote a series of articles on Papers on Political Economy for the Springfield Republican, which set forth Perry's Bastiat-derived viewpoint on political economy. The proper focus of economic theory, he declared, was value, 
and value is determined by the mutual services exchanged in any transaction. The crucial axiom and focus of economic analysis, added Perry, is that men exert effort in order to satisfy desires, and trade is a mutual exchange of services to bring about those satisfactions. Both parties gain from every exchange, else they would not engage in the transaction. Workers, Perry pointed out, could only gain if more capital is employed in hiring them, which would increase wage rates per worker. Encouraged by Walker, Perry expanded his articles into a textbook, published the following year, Elements of Political Economy, later called Political Economy, became by far the most successful economic textbook in the country, going through no less than 22 editions in 30 years. In his text, Perry not only paid tribute to Bastiat, but also hailed MacLeod and adopted the MacLeod vision of the history of economic thought, saluting Condillac, Whateley, Bastiat, and MacLeod as leaders of the correct services catalactic, or what Perry called the all-sales school. Engaging in a detailed and sophisticated analysis of exchange and its preconditions in values and the division of labor, Perry went beyond Bastiat to purge economics totally of the vague and materialistic Smithian concept of wealth, and to focus instead completely on exchange. Although he did not use the term entrepreneur, Perry's concentration on value and exchange as a human activity led him to treat the businessman as an active forecasting entrepreneur rather than a robotic participant in a static general equilibrium. Thus, your man of business must be a man of brains. The field of production is no dead level of sluggish uniformity like the billowy and heavy sea. Instead, the occupation requires foresight, wise courage, and a power of adaptation to varying circumstances. True to his focus on the great mutual benefits of exchange, Arthur Perry lauded free exchange and denounced all restrictions and limitations upon that process. Thus Perry points out that anybody can know that what is rendered in an exchange is thought less of on the whole than what is received. The slightest introspection tells any man that. As this must always be true of each of the parties to any exchange, each is glad to part with something for the sake of receiving something else. A very little introspection will inform any person that were this higher estimate wanting in the mind of either of the two parties, the trade would not take place at all. Hence no law or encouragement is needed to induce any persons to trade. Trade is natural, as any person can see who stops to ask himself why he has made a given trade. And on the other hand, any law or artificial obstacle that hinders two persons from trading who would otherwise trade, not only interferes with a sacred right, but destroys an inevitable gain that would otherwise accrue to two persons alike.
Perry particularly attacked such virulent interferences in free exchange as minimum wages, labor unions, usury laws, and paper money. While Perry, even more than Walker, failed to realize fully that bank deposits were as much part of the money supply as notes, he went even beyond Walker's 100% reserve proposal for paper money to calling for the eradication of paper money completely, even if backed 100% by specie. He believed, however, that bank credit and issue of deposits should be totally free within that matrix. Perry was especially vehement in attacking protectionism, writing numerous articles and delivering hundreds of speeches on behalf of free trade and against protection. The protective tariff, Perry pointed out, was unsound economically. It violated property rights, and it violated the letter and spirit of the Ten Commandments. A protective tariff stole from the Western farmer to establish privileges for a few manufacturers. Perry courageously withstood the pressure of powerful Williams alumni, headed by ironmonger George H. Eli, against his free trade teachings. After the assassination of his former student, lifelong friend, and fellow member of the Cobden Club of Great Britain, President James A. Garfield, Perry took the highly unpopular step in New England of leaving the Republican Party as the party of privilege and corruption and joining the Democratic Party. Much admired by free trade statesmen, Perry was asked by President Cleveland to be his Secretary of the Treasury. Another laissez-faire stalwart, at least for the prime years of his life, was Perry's friend and colleague who taught rhetoric at Williams, the Reverend John Bascom, 1827-1911. During the 1850s and 1860s, Walker, Perry, and Bascom made a formidable team in New England. Perry persuaded Bascom to write a book on economics, and Bascom's Political Economy, 1859, extolled the forces of production and competition in seeking profit, and in thereby benefiting the Commonwealth. Government's only role is to protect the rights of private property, so that production can do its work. Bascom also pointed out that monopoly can only be meaningfully defined as an exclusive grant of privilege by the government. Otherwise, all property could be called monopoly. Bascom also joined Walker in advocating 100% specie reserves to banknotes. Later, John Bascom became president of the University of Wisconsin and succeeded Perry in the chair of history and political economy at Williams when the latter retired in the 1890s. Bascom must have become a severe trial to his old friend, however, because by the 1880s Bascom had begun to abandon the cause and write books in the new status discipline of sociology. Bascom now shifted drastically to call for the government privileging of labor unions and for the abolition of the excess of individualism. Bascom had now come to believe that the only danger from socialism and collectivism was unreasonable resistance to this organic force which is pushing into our lives. Growth, that is, 
collectivism, Bascom smugly concluded, must have its way. Clearly, John Bascom had rapidly made his peace with the new intellectual current that swept Europe and the United States in the 1880s and 1890s. One of the most unusual and most advanced of the American admirers of Frederic Bastiat was the Boston merchant Charles Holt Carroll, 1799-1890. A staunch adherent of free trade and laissez-faire, Carroll, in articles in mercantile and financial magazines from 1855 until 1879, concentrated on questions of money and banking. In essence, Charles Carroll was the last Jacksonian, continuing to argue the ultra-hard money cause long past the tremendous setback it received during the Civil War, when Greenbackism and the National Banking Act necessarily led sound money men to concentrate on sheer return to the gold standard. Moreover, Carroll was not content to advocate 100% banking— he perceptively and consistently urged 100% banking for demand deposits as well as notes. Carroll, indeed, was particularly clear in demonstrating that bank demand deposits mainly arise from the extension of loans by the banks. He also pointed out the fallacy of the Smithian real bills justification for fractional reserve banking. Furthermore, Carroll realized that central banking, epitomized by the Bank of England, allows far more room for the expansion of fractional reserve and fictitious money than would a system of free banking. But in addition, Carroll went beyond most hard money advocates by calling for the elimination of such potentially dangerous currency names as the dollar, which give the illusion that these units are goods in themselves, and their replacement as the currency unit by regular, ordinary language definitions of weight in gold, for example, in numbers of troy ounces. For international currencies, that is, for currencies not redeemable in a common metal, Carroll worked out the essence of the purchasing power parity theory for the underlying determination of exchange rates on the world market. 10. Decline of Laissez-Faire Thought by the latter decades of the 19th century, laissez-faire in economic thought and in social and political influence was in decline throughout Europe and the United States. Pareto was scarcely the only laissez-faire thinker in despair. Spearheaded by the welfare-warfare state developed in Prussia, academics and politicians alike scorned the old-fashioned tenets of laissez-faire and embraced the seemingly modern and progressive advance of statism, state planning, and welfare state measures. American academics, trained in Germany, the home of the Ph.D., came back from Europe singing the praises of the organic big state, scorned the idea of economic law and the market economy, and advocated class harmony through big government. It is scarcely a coincidence that this new, modern, big government was desperately in need of academics, scientists, journalists, and other opinion-molding intellectuals, 
First, to engineer the consent of the public to the new dispensation of statism, and second, to participate in staffing, regulating, and legislating for the new planned economy. In short, the new dispensation meant a huge increase in monetary demand by the state for the services of pro-statist intellectuals, an important fact which did not go unnoticed among the ranks of the new progressive intelligentsia. Throughout Europe, small associations of academics and businessmen dedicated to laissez-faire were replaced by larger organizations of mainly academics dedicated to professionalism and the promotion of their academic economic guild. Not coincidentally, the new organizations were often explicitly statist and devoted to eradicating laissez-faire. Richard T. Eli, German-educated academic empire-builder devoted to institutionalism, statism, and Christian socialism, was the main founder of the American Economic Association, specifically excluding laissez-faire economists, such as William Graham Sumner and Perry, who had formed a political economy club. After this exclusionist policy was later rejected by Eli's colleagues as too extreme, Eli resigned from the AEA in a huff and was only reconciled in later years. Whereas laissez-faire thought was in decline, the tyranny of the British classical model, re-established by Mill in 1848, was ripe for collapse. The precedents for replacement of the classical model had already been worked out by past economists, by the scholastics, Cantillon, Turgot, and Say, and the 19th century French, by Whateley, the Trinity College Dublin School, and Longfield and Senior in Britain and Ireland. The next great advance in economic thought was the overthrow of the classical Ricardian paradigm and the arrival of the subjectivist revolution, generally mislabeled the marginalist revolution, beginning in the 1870s. The famous marginalist triad of Jevons, Valras, and Menger and the Austrian school has been fortunately dehomogenized in recent years, inspired by the classic article of William Jaffe two decades ago, and it is now clear that the revolution against the classical school paradigm went far beyond emphasis on the marginal unit of a good or service, especially in the hands of Karl Menger and his followers. But that is the stuff of another volume. 5. Vilfredo Pareto, Pessimistic Follower of Molinari one prominent person rarely associated by scholars with the Bastia-Ferrara laissez-faire school was the eminent sociologist and economic theorist Vilfredo Federico Damaso Pareto, 1848-1923. Pareto was born in Paris into a noble Genoan family. His father, the Marchese Raffaele Pareto, a hydraulic engineer, had fled Italy as a Republican and supporter of Mazzini. The senior Pareto returned to Italy in the mid-1850s and gained a high rank in the Italian civil service. The young Pareto studied at the Turin Polytechnic, where he earned a graduate engineering degree in 1869. 
His graduate thesis was on the fundamental principle of equilibrium in solid bodies. As we shall see in a later volume, Pareto's thesis led him to the idea that equilibrium in mechanics is the proper paradigm for investigation into economics and the social sciences. After graduation, Pareto became a director of the Florence branch of the Rome Railway Company, and in a few years he became managing director of a Florence firm manufacturing iron and iron products. Pareto soon plunged into political writing, taking a fiery stand in favor of laissez-faire and against all forms of government intervention, defending personal and economic freedom, and attacking plutocratic subsidies and privileges to business with equal fervor to his denunciations of social legislation or proletarian socialist forms of intervention. Pareto was one of the founders of the Adam Smith Society in Italy, and also ran unsuccessfully for Parliament twice during the early 1880s. Heavily influenced by Molinari, Pareto's writings came to the latter's attention in 1887. Molinari then invited Pareto to submit articles to the Journal des Economistes. Pareto met the French liberals and formed a friendship with Yves Guyot, who was to be Molinari's successor as editor of the Journal, and who was to write Molinari's obituary in 1912. Shortly after getting in touch with Molinari, Pareto's mother died, and he was able to give up his manufacturing post, become a consulting engineer, get married, and retire to his villa in 1890 to devote the rest of his life to writing, scholarship, and the social sciences. Freed of his business duties, Pareto plunged into a one-man crusade against the state and statism, and formed a close friendship with the laissez-faire neoclassical marginalist economist Maffeo Pantaleone, 1857-1924, who drew Pareto into technical economic theory. Having become a Valrassian under Pantaleone's tutelage, Pareto succeeded Léon Valras as professor of political economy at the University of Lausanne. Pareto continued at Lausanne, also teaching sociology until 1907, when he fell ill and retired to a villa on Lake Geneva, where he continued to study and write until his death. Pareto's shift into technical neoclassical theory did not for a moment abate his ardent battle for freedom and against all forms of statism, including militarism. An idea of his trenchant laissez-faire liberalism can be gained from his article on Socialism and Freedom, published in 1891. So we can group socialists and protectionists under the name of restrictionists, whilst those who want to base the distribution of wealth solely on free competition can be called liberationists. Thus, restrictionists are divided into two types. Socialists, who, through the intervention of the state, wish to change the distribution of wealth in favor of the less rich, and the others, who, even if they are sometimes not completely conscious of what they are doing, favor the rich. These are the supporters of commercial protectionism and social organization of a military type. We owe to Spencer the demonstration of the close analogy of these two types of protectionism, 
This similarity between protectionism and socialism was very well understood by the English liberals of the school of Cobden and that of John Bright, and was clarified in the writings of Bastiat. Pareto's writings, furthermore, are studded with appreciative and often lengthy quotes from Molinari. Thus, in the same article on socialism and freedom, Pareto praises Molinari for advancing a unique and bold system that proceeds towards the conquest of freedom using all the knowledge that is offered by modern science. In his Introduction to Marx's Capital in a book on Marxism, Marxism et Economie Pure, 1893, Pareto was clearly influenced by the French libertarian Dunoyer-Compte concept of the ruling class as whatever group controls the state. He ended the chapter with a lengthy and admiring quote from Molinari, who carried through this libertarian class doctrine. Pareto ended the Molinari quote with this sentence, Everywhere the ruling classes have one thought, their own selfish interests, and they use the government to satisfy them. Pareto's first great treatise on economics, the Cour d'Economie Politique, 1896, was heavily influenced by both Molinari and Herbert Spencer. In every polity, he points out, there is a minority ruling class exploiting the majority who are the ruled. Tariffs, Pareto treats as an example of legal spoliation, plunder, and theft. Pareto left no doubt that his objective was to eradicate all such legalized plunder. As Placido Bucolo points out, Pareto did not, as some analysts claim, adopt a Marxian view of class struggle in his cour. Instead, he adopted the French libertarian class doctrine. Thus Pareto says in the cour, the class struggle assumes two forms at all times. One consists in economic competition, which, when it is free, produces the greatest ophelimity, utility. For every class, like every individual, even if it only acts to its own advantage, is indirectly useful to the others. The other form of class struggle is the one whereby every class does its utmost to seize power and make it an instrument to despoil the other classes. Laissez-faire liberalism had been a genuine mass movement in much of the 19th century, certainly in the United States and Great Britain, and partially in France, Italy, Germany, and throughout Western Europe. Much of the time in the latter half of the century, the socialist idea was considered less of a threat to liberty by classical liberals such as Pareto and Spencer than the existing system of militarist and warlike statism dominated by privileged businessmen and landlords, the system to which Pareto would give the vivid and contemptuous name Pluto-Democracy. By the turn of the century, however, it was becoming clear to laissez-faire liberals that the masses had been captivated by socialism, and that socialism would pose an even greater threat to freedom and free markets than had the older neo-mercantilist Pluto-democratic system. Laissez-faire liberals throughout Europe had been gloriously optimistic during most of the 19th century, 
It was obvious that liberty provided the most rational, the most prosperous system, the system most attuned to human nature, the system that works for the harmony and peace of all peoples and nations. Surely the centuries-long shift from statism to freedom, from status to contract, and from the military to the industrial that had brought about the industrial revolution and immense improvement for the human race, was destined to continue and expand, ever onward and upward. Surely freedom and the world market were bound to expand forever, and the state gradually to wither away. The comeback, first of aggressive business statism in the 1870s, followed by expanding mass support for socialism in the 1890s, however, put a rude end to the ingrained optimism of laissez-faire liberals. The perceptive laissez-faire thinkers saw that the 20th century would bring the shades of night and put an end to the great civilization, the realm of progress and freedom that had been the product of 19th century liberalism. Pessimism and despair began to grip the slowly vanishing breed of laissez-faire liberals, and understandably so. They foresaw the growth everywhere of statism, tyranny, collectivism, massive wars, and social and economic decline. Each of the aging laissez-faire liberals reacted to this momentous and fateful new trend in his own way. Spencer continued to fight on to the end, placing greater emphasis on what he considered the main threat of socialism as against the business statism that he had previously combated. Pareto's path was to change radically into a stance of bitter cynicism. The world, he concluded, as he saw the inexorable decline of libertarian ideas and movements, is governed not by reason, but by irrationality, and it now became Pareto's role to analyze and chronicle those irrationalities. Thus, in an article in 1901, Pareto notes that everywhere in Europe, both socialism and nationalism imperialism are on the increase, and that classical liberalism is being ground down between them. All over Europe, the liberal party is disappearing, as are the moderate parties. The extremists stand face to face. On one side, socialism, the great rising religion of our age. On the other side, the old religions, nationalism and imperialism. Faced with the failure of his hopes and with the looming statist hell of the twentieth century, Vilfredo Pareto, in the words of his perceptive biographer S. E. Finer, decided to retreat to Galapagos, a remote island that, in the argo of Pareto's day, served as a metaphor and a vantage point for a totally detached analysis and critique of the folly looming around him. The final push for Pareto on the road to Galapagos came in 1902, when the Italian Socialist Party abandoned its opposition to the protectionist policy of the bourgeois statist government. The two long-standing enemies of laissez-faire liberalism had now joined forces. From that point on, Pareto's retreat to a detached and aristocratic Olympian bitterness was complete. The first book of Pareto's in which the new pessimistic stance becomes dominant is his Les Systèmes Socialistes, two volumes, 1901 and 1902. 
but his newly detached stance did not at all mean that he had abandoned his libertarian ideals or his method of social analysis. Indeed, Finer writes of Pareto that Molinari was a man whom he admired till his dying day. Thus, Pareto writes bitterly of how, in society, robbery through government is far easier, and hence more attractive, than hard work for the acquisition of wealth. As Pareto mordantly wrote, in a passage that anticipated such twentieth-century libertarian theorists as Franz Oppenheimer and Albert J. Nock, social movements usually follow the line of least resistance. While the direct production of economic goods is often very hard, taking possession of those goods produced by others is very easy. This facility has greatly increased from the moment when deprivation became possible through the law and not contrary to it. To save, a man must have certain control over himself. Tilling a field to produce grain is hard work. Waiting in the corner of a wood to rob a passerby is dangerous. On the other hand, going to vote is much easier, and if it means that all those who are unadaptable, incapable, and idle will be able to obtain board and lodging by it, they will hurry to do so. Pareto unfortunately championed a positivist methodology in keeping with his reliance on the model of physics and mechanics. But this was more than offset by his supplying us a deathless anecdote in a brilliant defense of natural economic law as against the anti-economists of the German historical school. It is an anecdote that Ludwig von Mises liked to relate in his seminar. Once, during a speech which he was making at a statistical congress in Bern, Pareto spoke of natural economic laws whereupon Gustav Schmoller, who was present, said that there was no such thing. Pareto said nothing, but smiled and bowed. Afterward, he asked Schmoller through one of his neighbors whether he was well acquainted with Bern. When Schmoller said yes, Pareto asked him again whether he knew of an inn where one could eat for nothing. The elegant Schmoller is supposed to have looked half-pityingly and half-disdainfully at the modestly-dressed Pareto, although he was known to be well-off, and to have answered that there were plenty of cheap restaurants, but that one had to pay something everywhere. At which Pareto said, So there are natural laws of political economy. 6. Academic Convert in Germany, Karl Heinrich Rau While John Prince Smith and his colleagues were battling valiantly for laissez-faire in the court of business and public opinion, the most prominent academic economist in Germany was becoming a highly influential convert to the cause. Karl Heinrich Rau, 1792-1870, was the most important academic economist in Germany in the first half of the 19th century, and perhaps down to his death in 1870. Rau was born in Erlangen, a Protestant town in northern Bavaria, and his father was Lutheran pastor and professor of theology at the university there. Graduating from Erlangen in 1812, Rau taught at secondary school, and in 1818 became professor of political economy at the University of Gießen. 
Four years later, Rao became professor of political economy at the University of Heidelberg and held that post until his death nearly half a century later. In addition to being a widely liked and influential teacher, Rao played an active and influential role in the government of Baden, indeed helping to shape the outlook of Baden officialdom for fifty years. In addition to being a long-time consultant to the Baden government, Rao became a court counselor upon accession to the chair at Heidelberg and became a privy counselor at Baden in 1845. Several times Rao served in the Baden Diet, and in 1848 was elected a member of the Frankfurt Parliament. Trained in German cameralism, Rao, for the first two decades of his lengthy career, was a temporizing moderate in his views, attempting to balance the Smithian system of natural liberty with cameralism, deductive theory with a compendium of facts and statistics. A cautious moderate, Rao was leery of abolishing the guilds, and defended an organicist view of the state as against Adam Smith. On the other hand, as time went on, Rao became increasingly laissez-faire liberal and less and less statist. The beginning of this gradual but accelerating conversion came in the early 1820s. In 1819 and 1820, Rao translated the six-volume treatise of the moderate Smithian Heinrich Friedrich von Storch, a Baltic German, teaching in Russia and writing in French. Rao's German translation of Storch's Cours d'économie politique was published in three volumes. Particularly important, however, was Rao's multi-volume textbook on economics, the Lehrbuch der politischen Ökonomie. The first volume of the Lehrbuch was published in 1826 and the second in 1828. The Lehrbuch promptly became the standard economics text in Germany, going through eight editions in Rao's lifetime, with a ninth edition of Volume 1 published six years after Rao's death. Moreover, Rao's Lehrbuch was translated into no less than eight languages. Rao's increasingly classical liberal views were reflected in the successive editions of the Lehrbuch. Still more were they reflected in the pages of the economic journal, the Archive der politischen Ökonomie und Polizeiwissenschaft, which Rao founded in 1835. The culmination of Karl Rao's conversion to laissez-faire came at the height of libertarian economic opinion in Europe in the years around 1847. In his address to the university community at Heidelberg in November 1847, Rao denounced state intervention as the creation of ever-increasing special privileges to the aid of selfish interest groups. State intervention, then, can only benefit one person or group at the expense of another. Moreover, government intervention, instead of curing social problems, creates many new problems of its own. Rao warned in his Heidelberg Address of the liberties endangered by government planning and controls, and particularly warned of the spread of socialist and communist fantasies. In the absence of private property and private enterprise, only force could be used to induce people to work. 7. The Scottish Maverick 
Henry Dunning MacLeod Henry Dunning MacLeod, 1821-1902, was an exuberant and prolific Scottish maverick, who, in the teeth of the million monolith dominating Britain after 1848, never received his due from British economists or British academics. MacLeod was born in Edinburgh, the son of a Scottish landowner, and studied mathematics at Trinity College, Cambridge, graduating in 1843. He became an attorney and was admitted to the bar six years later. Two years afterward, MacLeod wrote a report on the administration of poor relief in several Scottish parishes and went on to establish the first poor law union in Scotland. In 1854, MacLeod was made a director of the Royal British Bank, and this immediately sparked a lifelong fascination with economics, and specifically with matters of money and banking. MacLeod wrote prolifically on monetary matters, his Theory and Practice of Banking, 1855, becoming influential and going through five editions. MacLeod took a firm gold standard and free banking position, unfortunately adopting also the Banking School apologia for inflationary fractional reserve banking. MacLeod was the one who introduced the term Gresham's Law into economics, and also contributed an important analysis of the ways in which fractional reserve bank credit operates, in particular how bank loans create deposits, which then function on the market as money substitutes in the same way as banknotes. If MacLeod had confined his economic work to money and banking, he might have earned considerable respect among British economists. Although he differed from the mainstream in favoring free banking, his pro-gold standard and anti-bimetallist views, as well as his banking school orientation, were close enough to the reigning orthodoxy to bring him the acclaim he deserved. But MacLeod ran into a wall of opposition in Britain because he stood squarely against the British Smith-Ricardo-Mill labor theory of value and material concept of wealth. As a result, MacLeod's dream of becoming a professor never materialized. Inspired by Archbishop Whateley, MacLeod went back to the late 18th century and discovered the Abbé de Condillac whom he exuberantly declared to have been the true founder of economics, in contrast to the labor theory and materialist doctrine of Adam Smith. Enthusiastically adopting the Whateley concept of catalactics as the genuine method of economics, MacLeod argued that Condillac, with his focus on economics as the science of exchanges rather than wealth, was the founder of the catalactic approach. Condillac, noted MacLeod, like the Italian economists of the 18th century, places the origin and source of value in the human mind, and not in labor, which is the ruin of English economics. Furthermore, MacLeod asserted, Condillac was correct that exchange value stems from value conferred upon goods by consumers, so that value and demand derive solely from mental desires by consumers. Contrary to Smith and Ricardo, who believed that the labor of producers confers value on products, value does not spring from the labor of the producer, but from the desire of the consumer.
Since value stems from subjective valuation by consumers, it follows, declared MacLeod, that men engage in exchange precisely because each man values what he gains more than what he gives up, else he would not have embarked on the exchange. Hence, echoing scholastic and continental theorists from Jean Bourdin onwards, both parties to any exchange must gain in value. MacLeod went on, in the proto-Austrian spirit, to declare that anticipated market prices determine costs that will be incurred in production, rather than the other way round. It is indisputably true that things are not valuable because they are produced at great expense, but people spend much money in producing because they expect that others will give a great price to obtain them. Buyers do not give high prices because sellers have spent much money in producing, but sellers spend much money in producing because they hope to find buyers who will give more. As if Henry D. MacLeod did not give enough offense to mainstream 19th and 20th century economics, he kept his crimes by hailing the great libertarian and catalactician Frederic Bastiat, whom he saluted as the brightest genius who ever adorned the science of economics. Bastiat, MacLeod declared, plucked up by the roots the noxious fallacies which are the economics of Adam Smith and Ricardo. He simply cleared away the stupendous chaos and confusion and mass of contradictions of Adam Smith. In his revolutionary work of 1871, which brought marginalism and at least a semi-Austrian position to England, W. Stanley Jevons issued a cry from the heart against the noxious influence of the stifling authority of John Stuart Mill over economics in England. Ever eager to find and rediscover neglected forerunners, Jevons hailed Bastiat and MacLeod, as well as Senior, Cairns, and others. Unfortunately, as is evidenced by his treatment at the hands of the new Palgrave, MacLeod's reputation clearly needs to be resuscitated once again. 8. Plutology Hearn and Donisthorpe Another forerunner and contemporary hailed by the revolutionary marginalist Stanley Jevons was the Irish-Australian economist William Edward Hearn, 1826-1888. Born in County Cavan, Ireland, Hearn was one of the last students of the great Whateleyite economists at Trinity College, Dublin, entering in 1842 and graduating four years later. There he learned an economics very different from the dominant Millian school in Britain, an economics steeped in subjective utility theory and a catalactic focus upon exchange. Made the first professor of Greek at the new Queen's College, Galway, in Ireland at the age of 23, Hearn received an appointment five years later in 1854 as professor of modern history, logic, and political economy, as well as temporary professor of classics at the new University of Melbourne, Australia. In a country otherwise devoid of economists, Hearn had little incentive to pursue economic studies. He became dean of the law faculty and chancellor of the university, 
Most of his scholarship was devoted to such diverse subjects as the condition of Ireland, the government of England, the theory of legal rights and duties, and a study of the Aryan household, on all of which he published books issued in London as well as Melbourne. Hearn also served as a member of the Legislative Council of the State of Victoria and as leader of the Victoria House. Hearn wrote only one book in economics from his Avery in Australia, but it proved highly influential in England. Plutology, or The Theory of the Efforts to Satisfy Human Wants, was published in Melbourne in 1863 and reprinted in London the following year. Plutology was a term that Hearn adopted from the French laissez-faire economist J. G. Courcel Sonwil, 1813-1892, in his Treatise on the Theory and Practice of Political Economy, 1858, to mean a pure science of economics, a scientific analysis of human action. There are, indeed, hints in Hearn that he sought a broad science of human action going beyond even the limits of catalactics, or exchange. Hearn's plutology was patterned after Bastiat. Like Bastiat, Hearn provided a harmony lara, demonstrating the unfailing rule that the pursuit of self-interest produces a flow of services on the market in the order of their social importance. Like Bastiat, Hearn began with a chapter on human wants, the satisfaction of which is central to the economic system. Human wants, Hearn pointed out, are hierarchically ordered, with the most intense wants satisfied first, and with the value of each want diminishing as the supply of goods to fulfill that want increases. In short, Hearn came very close to a full-fledged theory of diminishing marginal utility. Since each party to every exchange gains from the transaction, this means that each person gains more than he gives up, so that there is an inequality of value and a mutual gain in every exchange. The value of every good, showed Hearn, is determined by the interaction of its utility with its degree of scarcity. Demand and supply thereby interact to determine price, and competition will tend to bring prices down to the minimum cost of production of each product. Thus providence, through competition, brings about a beneficent social order, a natural harmony, through the free market economy. In all these doctrines, Hearn anticipated the imminent advent of the Austrian school of economics, as well as echoing and building upon the best utility, scarcity, harmony, mutual benefit analyses of continental economics. Also anticipating the Austrian school and building upon Turgot and various 19th century French and British writers, including John Ray, was Hearn's analysis of entrepreneurship. The entrepreneur contracts with labor and capital, that is, lenders, at a fixed price, attains full title to the eventual output, and then bears the profit or loss incurred by eventual sale to the particular entrepreneur at the next stage of production. Hearn also showed that capital accumulation increases the amount of capital relative to the supply of labor, 
and therefore raises the productivity of labor, as well as standards of living in the economy. He saw that capital could accumulate, and therefore living standards could increase in the economy without limit. In addition, Hearn generalized the law of diminishing returns, expanding it from land to all factors of production, being careful to assume a given technology and supplies of natural resources. A champion of free trade, William Hearn called for the removal of Catholic disabilities in Britain, the freeing of the Irish wool trade, the abolition of usury laws and entail, and the removal of all restrictions on transactions in land. Opposing government intervention, Hearn declared that government's only function is to preserve order and enforce contracts, and to leave all other matters to individual interest. Hearn's Plutology was used as an economics text in Australia for six decades, until 1924. Indeed, it was virtually the only work on economics published in Australia until the 1920s. While the book went unnoticed upon its publication in London in 1864, it soon drew high praise from several economists, especially Jevons, who hailed it as the best and most advanced work on economics to date. Jevons featured Plutology prominently in his path-breaking Theory of Political Economy, 1871. Apart from these citations, however, Hearn's work gave rise to only one plutological disciple, the attorney and mine owner Wordsworth Donisthorpe, born 1847, published his Principles of Plutology, London, Williams and Norgate, 1876, which apparently was mentioned by no economic work from that day until the publication of the new Palgrave in 1987, either in the literature of the time or in any of the histories or surveys of economic thought. While scarcely an earth-shattering work, Donisthorpe's 206-page book certainly did not deserve to sink without trace. Most of Principles of Plutology was devoted to ground-clearing methodology, discussion of definitions and attacks on Plutology's great methodological rival, political economy. But yet there was much valuable substantive discussion in Donisthorpe, a lucid writer who admirably wanted to forge a scientific economics that would clearly distinguish between analysis and ethical or political advocacy. Defining plutology as the purely scientific investigation of the uniformity or relations between values, Donisthorpe went on to point out that values are all relative and that these values, including the value of money, vary continually and unpredictably, in contrast to units such as weights, which remain fixed and unvarying. There are different intensities of wants and different degrees of utility, and the interaction of these utilities and relative scarcities determine values. In a proto-Austrian manner, Donisthorpe also distinguished between directly useful and indirectly useful goods, and showed how the latter had varying degrees of remoteness from the pleasure-giving stage of goods. In short, Donisthorpe engaged in a sophisticated analysis of the time structure of production, 
He also had a pioneering analysis of the influence of substitutes and complements, co-elements, upon values. While Donna Thorpe's discussion of demand curves, that is, schedules, supply and price, was interesting but hopelessly confused, for example, he denied that an increased desire of consumers for a product would raise their demand for the product, he did present a remarkably clear foreshadowing of Philip Wicksteed's insight of four decades later that withholding the stock of a product by suppliers really amounts to the supplier's reservation demand for that product. Thus Dunnisthorpe. In the first place, sellers and buyers are not two classes, but one class. To refuse a certain price for an article is to give that price for it. A proprietor who refuses to sell a horse for fifty guineas virtually gives fifty guineas for the horse, in the hope of getting more for him another day, or else because he obtains more gratification from the horse than from fifty guineas. Proprietors who do not sell must be regarded as virtually buyers of their own goods. Perhaps from disappointment at the reception of his book, Wordsworth Donisthorpe, like Hearn before him, abandoned economic theory and plutology from then on, and spent the next two decades battling on behalf of libertarianism and individualism in law and political philosophy. Chapter 14 After Mill Bastiat and the French Laissez-Faire Tradition 1. The French Laissez-Faire School John Stuart Mill's Conquest of British Economics by his 1848 treatise The Principles of Political Economy succeeded in imposing a miasma upon British economics for at least a quarter century. In some respects, indeed, the subjectivist, or in its trivialized label, the marginalist revolution against Mill, led abortively by Jevons in the 1870s, never really took hold in Great Britain. The Millian miasma imposed a vague and incoherent adhesion to the labor theory, or, at best, the cost-of-production theory of value, to the methodology of positivism, tempered by a confused inductivism, to individualism, muddled by organicism, to a vague tentative preference for the free market, easily overridden by almost any objection, in particular the alleged ability of labor unions to win general wage increases, as well as the supposed moral superiority of socialism. Politically, in short, Mill was cleverly positioned to be the patron saint of laissez-faire, as well of virtually any and all attacks against it. In short, to be the philosopher of the British status quo as it existed, or as it might become. At the same time, Mill became the modern liberal intellectual's favorite straw-man champion of laissez-faire, ever ready to make the most damaging concessions to his modern liberal opponents. In that way, the modern liberal intellectual can sound the triumphal note. But even Mill admits, and thus expect to win the day by the invocation of authority alone. 
In monetary and banking affairs, indeed, Mill was the guru for precisely the status quo as imposed by the Peel Act of 1844 and continuing until World War I, that is, a broad commitment to hard money in the form of the gold standard, but cleverly and fundamentally vitiated by a Bank of England monopoly control of a fractional reserve banking system that could readily inflate money and credit within that allegedly sound system. Although of all countries British economics in the 19th century and down through World War II managed to accrue the greatest prestige, it was not able to exercise total hegemony over economics abroad. In France in particular, the legacy of J.B. Say led, in dramatic contrast, to a subjective utility and consistent laissez-faire tradition that managed to retain dominance over French economics for nearly a century. We have seen that French laissez-faire economics was established in the Restoration period after 1815 by a brilliant group of young economists and social theorists inspired by J.B. Say, and headed by Charles Dunoyer and by Say's son-in-law, Charles Comte. Although Comte died in middle age, Dunoyer lived long enough to write his three-volume magnum opus on the freedom of labor, 1845, and to preside over the founding in 1842 of the leading Society of Political Economy, which would meet monthly for decades, as well as its scholarly journal, the Journal des Economistes, which had been launched a few months before the Society. From then until World War I, an admirable and productive cadre of economists staffed the main French academic posts, edited and wrote for numerous scholarly journals, formed associations and conferences, and wrote and lectured indefatigably on behalf of harmony of interests and general prosperity through free markets, free trade, and laissez-faire. It is remarkable that at least three generations of French economists were schooled in and carried on and developed this laissez-faire tradition. Despite generations of changing fashions and enormous temptations from the side of statism and special privilege, French economists for nearly a century stuck to their guns and remained stalwart champions of laissez-faire and enemies of state intervention and special privilege. Here we might pay special attention to the men who collaborated on the first Encyclopedia of Economics, an excellent two-volume work, Dictionnaire d'Economie Politique, Paris, 1852 and 1853, co-edited and published by Gilbert Guillaumin, 1801 to 1864, an indefatigable publisher of countless French economic and laissez-faire works during the 19th century. The co-editor, Charles Coquelin, 1805-1852, himself a major contributor to the dictionary, unfortunately died shortly before publication. The dictionary went through four printings. Another leading light of the dictionary and founding secretary of the Society of Political Economy was Joseph Garnier, Clément Joseph Garnier, 
1813-1881, for some years editor-in-chief of the Journal des Economistes and author of several highly successful textbook treatises in economics, including Element d'économie politique, 1845, many editions, and Element des finances, 1858, many editions. French laissez-faire economists pioneered not only encyclopedias of economics, but also the study of the history of the discipline. The first history of economic thought was the Histoire de l'économie politique en Europe, 1837, fourth edition, 1860, English translation, History of Political Economy in Europe, 1880, by Jérôme Adolphe Blanqui, 1798-1854, who studied political economy under Say and succeeded him as professor. Blanqui was also for many years editor-in-chief of the Journal des Economistes. Joseph Garnier had been Blanqui's student. Blanqui, in turn, was the son-in-law of Michel Chevalier, 1806-1879. An engineer and Saint-Simonian socialist in his youth, Chevalier became a laissez-faire liberal, becoming professor of political economy at the Collège de France and publishing the three-volume Cours d'économie politique, 1842-1850. Chevalier was also a statesman, negotiating the famous Free Trade Treaty with England, England being represented by the great Richard Cobden in 1860, a high-water mark of the free trade and free market movement in 19th-century Europe. Another prominent student of Chevalier was Henri-Joseph Léon Baudrillard, 1821 to 1892, who went on to teach political economy at the Collège de France, and whose Manuel d'économie politique was published in 1857 and went into numerous editions. Another prominent economist was the Pole Louis Volovsky, 1810 to 1876, a brother-in-law of Michel Chevalier. Born in Warsaw, Volovsky emigrated to France in 1834, founding and editing for many years the Review of Legislation and Jurisprudence. Possessor of a doctorate of law and another in political economy, Volovsky was to become a banker, statesman, and professor, as well as being associated for many years with the Journal des Economistes. Volovsky's nephew, Émile Levasseur, 1828-1911, became a prominent economic historian and successor to Baudrillard at the Collège de France. Levasseur published a well-known work on the history of the working classes in France, 1859, and in 1867 published a Précis d'économie politique, which went into many editions. Volovsky and Levasseur, it should be noted, wrote a scintillating joint article in defense of property rights on property for Lehler's three-volume Cyclopedia of Political Science, published in the United States in 1884. A worthy successor to Jérôme Adolphe Blanqui as historian of economic thought in the French laissez-faire school was Maurice Bloch, 1816 to 1901. 
Born in Berlin but emigrating to France, Block worked in the statistical department of the Ministry of Agriculture, Industry, and Trade. By his forties, Block was a full-time editor and writer in economics. For 44 years, from 1856 virtually until his death, Block served as editor of the Annual of Economics and Statistics, as well as editor of the General Dictionary of Politics from 1862 and later years, and the Dictionary of French Administration, 1855 and later years and also wrote several important books on the theory of statistics, on socialism, on French finances, and a short manual of political economy, published in 1873 and going into many editions. An erudite and indefatigable scholar, Maurice Bloch served for over 40 years as a reporter on all economic writings in Europe for the Journal des Economistes, capping his career with a great two-volume history of economic thought, Le Progrès de la Science Économique depuis Adam Smith, 1890. In his Progrès, Bloch praised the new Austrian school and denounced the historicism and opposition to economic law of the German historical school. Three generations of Sées also took a prominent part in the French movement of laissez-faire economics. Jean-Baptiste's only son, Horace-Émile Say, 1794-1860, was merchant for a time in the United States, and especially in Brazil, and served as a commercial judge and a counselor of state during the period of the Second Republic, 1859-1861. Horace Say wrote a book on the history of commercial relations between France and Brazil. Horace's son, Jean-Baptiste Léon Say, 1826-1896, became a prominent statesman devoted to free trade and laissez-faire. Léon Say wrote many articles for the Journal des Economistes. He was the owner of the laissez-faire-oriented Journal des Débats, and he was the Minister of Finance from 1872 to 1879, and again in 1882. He was also President of the French Senate in 1882. Léon Say concluded a preliminary free trade treaty with England in 1880, and successfully opposed the introduction of an income tax. One of the last of the fiery and uncompromising free market and anti-interventionists of the French school was Yves Guyot, 1843-1928, a prolific writer who also served as city councillor of Paris, 1876-1885, and minister of public works, 1889-1892. Guyot succeeded the venerable Gustave de Molinari after he stepped down as editor of the Journal des Economistes in 1909. So dominant was the laissez-faire school in France during the 19th century that its teaching permeated the popular culture. Popular writers, journalists, and novelists expounded on the harmony of interests and on the mutual benefit and the general prosperity brought about by the free market. 
Thus, no more lucid and inspiring an economic primer and peon to the workings of the free market has ever been written than the lectures to French workers, formed into the Handbook of Social Economy, or The Workers' ABC, written by the popular novelist Edmond Abou, 1828-1885. Indeed, the very lucidity and popularity of the French writers was turned against them by the British classical economists, generally dense and obscure writers who could turn their very elegance of style against the French and denounce them for superficiality of thought and scholarship. This tradition has been redoubled by modern historians, whose intense hostility to the French writers' political conclusions reinforces their brusque dismissal. In particular, modern historians unfairly dismiss the French writers as mere popularizers, lacking theoretical depth. 2. Frédéric Bastiat, The Central Figure Particularly suffering from historical neglect is the most famous of the French laissez-faire economists, Claude Frédéric Bastiat, 1801-1850, to whom the two-volume Dictionnaire d'Economie Politique, 1852, was respectfully and affectionately dedicated. Bastiat was indeed a lucid and superb writer, whose brilliant and witty essays and fables to this day are remarkable and devastating demolitions of protectionism and of all forms of government subsidy and control. He was a truly scintillating advocate of an untrammeled free market. Frédéric Bastiat's justly famous Petition of the Candlemakers is still anthologized in books of economic readings. In this satiric petition to the French Parliament, the Candlemakers Trade Association petitions the government to protect their industry, which employs many thousands of men, from the unfair, unjust, invasive competition of a foreign light source, the sun. Bastiat's candlemakers petition the government to shut out the sunlight all over France, a protective device that would give employment to many millions of worthy French candlemakers. Bastiat's fable of the broken window also brilliantly refuted Keynesianism nearly a century before its birth. Here he outlines three levels of economic analysis— A mischievous boy hurls a rock at a plate-glass store window and breaks the glass. As a crowd gathers round, the first-level analysis, common sense, comments on the event. Common sense deplores the destruction of property in breaking the window and sympathizes with the storekeeper for having to spend his money repairing the window. But then, says Bastiat, comes the second-level, sophisticated analyst, or what we might call a proto-Keynesian. The Keynesian says, oh, but you people don't realize that the breaking of the window is really an economic blessing, for in having to repair the window, the storekeeper invigorates the economy by his spending, and gives welcome employment to glaciers and their workers. Destruction of property by compelling spending therefore stimulates the economy and has an invigorating multiplier effect on production and employment. But then in steps Bastiat, the third-level analyst, and points out the grievous fallacy in the destructionist proto-Keynesian position. 
The alleged sophisticated critic, says Bastiat, concentrates on what is seen and neglects what is not seen. The sophisticate sees that the storekeeper must give employment to glaziers by spending money to repair his window. But what he doesn't see is the storekeeper's opportunity foregone. If he did not have to spend the money on repairing the window, he could have added to his capital and to everyone's standard of living, and thereby employed people in the act of advancing rather than merely trying to sustain the current stock of capital. Or the storekeeper might have spent the money on his own consumption, employing people in that form of production. In this way, the economist, Bastiat's third-level observer, vindicates common sense and refutes the apologia for destruction of the pseudo-sophisticate. He considers what is not seen as well as what is seen. Bastiat, the economist, is the truly sophisticated analyst. Frédéric Bastiat was also a perceptive political or politico-economic theorist. Attacking statism as a growing parasitic burden upon producers in the market, he defined the state as the great fiction by which everyone tries to live off everyone else. And in his work, The Law, 1850, Bastiat insisted that law and government must be strictly limited to defending the persons, the liberty, and the property of people against violence. Any going beyond that role would be destructive of liberty and prosperity. While often praised as a gifted popularizer, Bastiat has been systematically derided and undervalued as a theorist. Criticizing the classical Smithian distinction between productive labor on material goods and unproductive labor in producing immaterial services, Bastiat made an important contribution to economic theory by pointing out that all goods, including material ones, are productive and are valued precisely because they produce immaterial services. Exchange, he pointed out, consists of the mutually beneficial trade of such services. In emphasizing the centrality of immaterial services in production and consumption, Bastiat built on J.B. Say's insistence that all market resources were productive and that income to productive factors were payments for that productivity. Bastiat also built upon Charles Dunoyer's thesis in his New Treatise on Social Economy, 1830, that value is measured by services rendered and that products exchange according to the quality of services stored in them. Perhaps most important, in stark contrast to the Smith-Ricardo classical school's exclusive emphasis on production and neglect of the goal of economic endeavors, consumption, Bastiat proclaimed once again the continental emphasis on consumption as the goal and hence the determinant of economic activity. Bastiat's own oft-repeated triad, once efforts, satisfactions, summed it up. Wants are the goal of economic activity, giving rise to efforts and eventually yielding satisfactions. 
Furthermore, Bastian noted that human wants are unlimited and hierarchically ordered by individuals in their scales of value. Bastia's concentration on exchange and on analysis of exchange was also a highly important contribution, especially in contrast to the British classicists' focus on production of material wealth. It was the emphasis on exchange that led Bastia and the French school to stress the ways in which the free market leads to a smooth and harmonious organization of the economy. Hence, the importance of laissez-faire. Frédéric Bastiat was born in 1801 in Bayonne, in southwestern France, the son of a landowner and prominent merchant in the Spanish trade. Orphaned at the age of nine, Bastiat entered his uncle's business firm in 1818. When, seven years later, he inherited his grandfather's landed estate, Bastiat left the firm and became a gentleman farmer. But his interests were neither in trade nor in agriculture, but in the study of political economy. Fluent in English, Italian, and Spanish, Bastia steeped himself in all the extant economic literature in these languages. Apart from an unsuccessful attempt to establish an insurance firm in Portugal in the early 1840s, as well as being a member of the district council and his undemanding service as a country judge, Bastia spent two decades in quiet study and reflection on economic problems. He was most heavily influenced by J.B. Say, partially by Adam Smith, by Destut de Tracy, and particularly by the great four-volume laissez-faire libertarian work of Charles Comte, A Treatise on Legislation, 1827. Indeed, as a teenager, Bastia had been a subscriber to Comte and Dunoyer's journal Le Censure, and he was to become a friend and colleague of Dunoyer's in the struggle for free trade. Bastia entered the economic literature with a sparkling attack on protectionism in France and England in the Journal des Economistes in late 1844, an article which created a sensational impact. Bastiat followed this up with another article in the journal in early 1845, denouncing socialism and the concept of a right to labor. During the few years he had left on earth, Bastiat poured forth a stream of lucid and influential writings. His two-volume Economic Sophisms, 1845, a collection of witty essays on protectionism and government controls, sold out quickly, going into several editions, and was swiftly translated into English, Spanish, Italian, and German. During the same year, Bastiat published Cobden et la Ligue, his tribute to Cobden and the Anti-Corn Law League a history of the League that included the principal speeches and articles by Cobden, Bright, and other stalwarts of the League. After setting up a free trade association in Bordeaux in 1846, Bastiat moved to Paris, where he stepped up his literary efforts and organized a national association for free trade. He became the secretary-general of the National Association, as well as editor-in-chief of Free Trade, the periodical of the French Free Trade Association. 
Even though in frail health, Bastiat also participated in the Revolution of 1848, being elected to the Constituent and then the Legislative Assembly, where he served from 1848 until his death. Bastiat's final political service has been undervalued by most historians. While generally voting in the minority in the Assembly as a stalwart of individual liberty and laissez-faire, Bastiat was highly influential as vice-president and often acting president of the Assembly's Finance Committee. There he fought tirelessly for lower government spending, lower taxes, sound money, and free trade. While he fought ardently in opposition to socialist and communist schemes, Bastiat elected to sit on the left as a proponent of laissez-faire and the republic and as an opponent of protectionism, absolute monarchy, and a warlike foreign policy. As a consistent civil libertarian, Bastiat also fought against the jailing of socialists, the outlawry of peaceful trade unionism, or the declaration of martial law. Bastiat also made his mark by at least partially converting the man who would become the president of the Provisional Republic in 1848, the eminent poet and orator Alphonse-Marie-Louis Lamartine, 1790-1869, from his previous socialism to an admittedly inconsistent laissez-faire position. Bastiat died young in 1850, leaving his two-volume theoretical magnum opus, Economic Harmonies, only partially published. The remainder was published posthumously. It was a fitting memorial to Bastiat that his friend Michel Chevalier, the man whom he had converted to free trade and laissez-faire, should have been the one to conclude with Richard Cobden the great free trade Anglo-French treaty of 1860. Bastiat met Cobden on his first trip to England in the summer of 1845, and for the remainder of Bastiat's life the two men were close friends and frequent correspondents, visiting each other frequently. The two influenced each other greatly, Bastiat providing Cobden with broader theoretical insights in his devotion to free trade, and the latter inspiring Bastiat to organize a movement in France similar to the Anti-Corn Law League. In particular, Cobden took from Bastiat a devotion to natural law and natural rights, an emphasis on the harmony of individuals, groups, and nations through the mutual benefits of the free market, and a staunch opposition to war and an interventionist foreign policy, and a devotion to international peace. The two also shared a consistent devotion to laissez-faire, devoid of the numerous hesitancies and qualifications imposed by the classical economists, or of the gloomy Ricardian hostility to landlords or to land rent. 3. THE INFLUENCE OF BASTIAT IN EUROPE Inspired by Bastiat's organizing and by his theories, free trade associations rapidly established themselves in various countries in Europe. Belgium formed a free trade association shortly after France, and the Belgian group stayed in constant correspondence with Bastiat and his Libre Échange. Former minister Charles de Brucaire, burgomaster of Brussels, was president of the Belgian Association. 
In Italy, an association for free trade established the journal Contemporaneo in the autumn of 1846 and printed a statement hailing the French Free Trade Association. While the statement praised the Anti-Corn Law League, it also lauded the French Association as more all-encompassing in its free market position. The British Association has declared war against only one of the evils in its own country, tariffs and the corn laws, while the French Association has adopted a more general plan that encompasses the entire human race. It wishes to induce all nations to fraternize and to invite everyone to the banquet of production and consumption. One of the prominent signers of the Italian statement was Professor Raffaele Busacca, a vigorous defender of free trade and a prolific writer on statistical, historical, and theoretical subjects in economics. A particularly important follower and admirer of Frédéric Bastiat was the man who became the unquestioned leader and dominant force in economic theory and policy in 19th century Italy. He was the Sicilian-born Francesco Ferrara, 1810-1900, a stalwart advocate of laissez-faire, professor of political economy at the University of Turin, and the teacher and mentor of most Italian economists of the next generation. Ferrara also played an important political role in the unification of Italy, and was at one time Minister of Finance of the new nation. In addition, Ferrara was an eminent historian of economic thought, to which he contributed the editorship of the first two series of the multi-volume translation Biblioteca del Economista, Turin, 1850-1869, and especially his two-volume Esame Storico Critico di Economisti e Dottrine Economice, 1889-1892. For many years, Ferrara was professor at the University of Turin, and there trained many prominent Italian economists. In addition to Bastiat, upon whom he lavished 100 pages in his great Esame, Ferrara particularly hailed the works of Say, Dunoyer, and Chevalier. Ferrara's theoretical contributions, like Bastiat's, have been systematically underweighted by harsh, modern, anti-laissez-faire critics, who, as in the case of Bastiat, find it difficult to believe that anyone who is ardently and consistently in favor of laissez-faire could possibly be an important scholar and economic theorist. Thus Ferrara's cost-of-reproduction theory of value, often dismissed as a clumsy rewrite of Ricardian cost-of-production, has recently been shown instead to be a partial anticipation of subjective marginal utility theory. For several decades, Francesco Ferrara's exchange-oriented and laissez-faire economics held sway among Italian economists. In the 1870s, however, the interconnected statist trends of protectionism and of the German historical school, as well as outright socialism, began to infest Italian economics. Ferrara valiantly combated the new trends. 
A formal split occurred in 1874 when the younger statists, centered in Padua, formed the Association for the Development of Economic Studies, publishing a journal which soon became the Giornale degli Economisti. On the other hand, the Ferraristas, centered in Florence, formed the Adam Smith Society and published the weekly L'Economista. While outnumbered, the Ferrara group produced some notable younger disciples, including Domenico Berardi, who published a critique of government intervention in 1882 and a book on money 30 years later. A. Bertolini who wrote a critique of socialism in 1889, and Fontanelli, who wrote a critique of unions and strikes. In particular, we might mention Tullio Martello of Bologna, known as the last of the Ferraristas. With the characteristic half-sneer which he tended to reserve for ardent partisans of laissez-faire, Schumpeter wrote of Martello's challenging call for polymetallism as the path of complete monetary freedom in La Moneta, 1883, that the value of which is but slightly impaired by some liberalist vagaries on free coinage. While seemingly battling a rear-guard action against overwhelming odds, Ferrara and his school actually hung on long enough to turn the tide, by influencing the new army of marginalist liberalists led by Maffeo Pantaleoni. The group seized control of the dominant economic journal, the Giornale degli Economisti, in 1890, and was to remain dominant for years thereafter. Sweden was a country heavily influenced by Bastiat, who became the major authority in Swedish economics and politics. A young Swede, Johann August Gripenstedt, died 1874, met Bastiat on a trip to France, and was deeply influenced for the rest of his life by the French laissez-faire leader. Gripenstedt became the greatest of the economic liberals in Sweden during the 1860s and 1870s, as well as the most influential politician in Sweden. By 1870, Gripenstedt, almost single-handed, had managed to eliminate all import and export prohibitions in Sweden, to abolish all export duties, to reduce tariffs on manufactured goods, and to bring about free trade in agricultural products. Shortly after Gripenstedt's death, his followers and disciples formed the Stockholm Economic Society in 1877, dedicated to the principles of Bastiat and Gripenstedt. Some of the leading members were Johann Walter Arnberg, director of the Bank of Sweden, who warned of the dangers of socialism stemming from businessmen's demands for government subsidies, G.K. Hamilton, professor of economics at the University of Lund, so dedicated to Frederic Bastiat that he named his son Bastiat in 1865, A.O. Wallenberg, founder of the Stockholm Euskilda Bank, and Johann Henrik Palma, leading banker, dedicated to free trade. Two prominent laissez-faire political leaders in the economic society should be mentioned. One was Axel Gustafsson Benich, director general of the customs and right-hand man of Gripenstedt. Benich was an indefatigable and joyous battler for free trade and laissez-faire throughout his long life. 
Another was the president of the Stockholm Economic Society, Carl Friedrich Wern, a Gothenburg merchant who became Minister of Finance and head of the Board of Trade. Wern resigned from the latter post because he refused to sign a law mandating protection of young timber in the forests, a measure he denounced as an egregious invasion of the rights of private property. As was true of laissez-faire thinkers and activists in England and France, Swedish libertarians were split on what to do about banking. Central banker Johan Arnberg and economist Hans Forsell favored the Central Bank of Sweden as a means of abolishing all private banknotes, which they considered inflationary and pernicious. On the other hand, banker A. O. Wallenberg championed free banking. By the mid-1880s, however, in Sweden as in the rest of Europe, statism began to make a successful comeback and gradually to become dominant. Protectionists began to infiltrate the economic society by the mid-1880s, and Sweden adopted a protective tariff system in 1888. In 1893, the symbol of protectionist triumph came, with a protectionist being chosen president of the former central nucleus of free trade, the Stockholm Economic Society. During the 1880s, too, despite the bitter attacks of Forsell and other founding stalwarts, the society began to champion social welfare and other cateter socialist, socialism of the chair, policies. In this way, Swedish economic theory and policy shifted, during the decade, from its original French laissez-faire orientation toward the German historical school and its monarchical socialism. This sharp change was greatly facilitated by German being made the dominant foreign language in the Swedish public schools in 1878. But even in Prussia, a free trade party was established during the late 1840s dedicated to Bastia's principles. The Prussian free trade movement was led by John Prince Smith, 1809-1874, son of an English father and German mother, who corresponded frequently with Bastia. In one letter, Prince Smith wrote to Bastia, the friends to whom I have shown your book, Economic Harmonies, are enthusiastic about it. I promise you that it will be read eagerly by our best thinkers. We hope to establish a formal league among the democratic parties and the free traders. Bring Bastia here, a leader of the Democrats said to me, and I promise to lead ten thousand men in a procession to celebrate his visit to our capital. John Prince Smith was born in London in 1809, the son of a barrister. On the death of his father, he began working at the age of 13 for a London mercantile firm. Later, he turned to journalism, traveling to his mother's country, and in 1831 became a teacher of English and French at a gymnasium at the port of Elbing in East Prussia. Learning economics in Germany, Prince Smith, by the 1830s, began writing articles on behalf of the free market and vigorously defended seven professors who had been fired in 1837 from the University of Göttingen for protesting the despotic revocation of the liberal Hanoverian constitution. 
His ensuing difficulties with the Prussian Educational Administration led Prince Smith to leave his teaching post in 1840 and turn to full-time journalism. Prince Smith not only came out generally for the free market, but also began a vigorous and consistent anti-war and anti-militarist stand, which brought him to advocate the elimination of the Prussian state's bulwark, the standing army, and its replacement by a far cheaper and popularly controlled citizens' militia. In 1843, Prince Smith launched his lifelong crusade for freedom of trade, putting it in a historical and sociological context reminiscent of the writings of Comte and Dunoyer. Furthermore, Prince Smith made clear that for him, free trade meant not simply absence of international trade barriers, but also an absolute free market at home, with the state confined only to police protection. In 1846, Prince Smith, joined by several associates, sent an address to Robert Peel, in which they congratulated the British Prime Minister for his outstanding achievement in repealing the Corn Laws. Peel's gracious and highly principled reply caused a sensation in Prussia, and Prince Smith was inspired by the response to found in December of that year the German Free Trade Union. The Union, consisting of business leaders and scholars, held its first organizing meeting the following March in the hall of the Berlin Stock Exchange. The great majority of the 200 attendees were businessmen. For the rest of his life, John Prince Smith led the way in Germany in agitating for free markets and free trade. In 1860, he founded the Economic Society as the successor to the Free Trade Union. His home in Berlin, he had married the daughter of a wealthy Berlin banker, became a salon for liberal Prussian politicians, some of whom formed the Progressive Party. In 1858, Prince Smith helped found the annual Congress of German Economists, which was dedicated to laissez-faire until its final meeting in 1885. At the Congress, Prince Smith delivered papers attacking usury laws, criticizing patents, and denouncing irredeemable paper money. In 1863, Prince Smith helped found and co-edited the Quarterly Journal for Economy, Politics, and Cultural History, along with the ultra-individualist Julius Falker, 1820-1878, Prince Smith's closest collaborator. The Quarterly Journal soon became the chief theoretical organ of classical liberalism in Germany, and continued in existence for thirty years. Fluent in French, Prince Smith contributed to the French Journal des Economistes, and he also helped organize and wrote for a concise dictionary of economics, 1866, modeled after the French laissez-faire Dictionnaire d'économie politique. During the 1870s and 1880s, laissez-faire views in Prussia and Germany were swiftly replaced by the dominance of the German historical school, statism, and socialism of the chair. This radical change was greatly fostered by the political triumph of Bismarck and Prussian militarism over classical liberalism and the union of the bulk of the German nation under the Prussian domination of blood and iron. 
The high point of the European free trade movement came early at a famous international congress of economists organized by the Belgian Free Trade Association at Brussels from 16 to 18 September 1847. Inspired by the Anti-Corn Law League victory and the Bastia movement, and by a triumphal 14-month-long European tour by Cobden in 1846 and 1847, the Congress met to decide the free trade question. Presided over by the Belgian de Brucaire, the Congress consisted of 170 delegates from 12 countries and included publicists, manufacturers, agriculturalists, merchants, and statesmen, as well as economists. While Bastia was unable to attend, de Brucaire, in his opening address, hailed Bastia as the zealous apostle of our doctrines. Particularly active at the Congress was the French delegation, especially Louis Volovsky, Charles Dunoyer, Jérôme Adolphe Blanqui, and Joseph Garnier. Also active was John Prince Smith, head of the Prussian delegation. Other prominent attendees were Colonel Thomas Perronet Thompson of the English Parliament and James Wilson, editor of The Economist. While a small contingent of protectionists spoke at the Congress, they were swamped by the free traders, who passed a resounding declaration for freedom of trade. Unfortunately, plans for further meetings of the Congress were broken up by the Revolution of 1848, which delivered a grave setback to the movement for economic freedom in Europe, from which it took some years to recover. After a brief Indian summer of the 1860s, the laissez-faire movement for free markets, free trade, and international peace began in the 1870s and 1880s to give way, tragically, to a Europe of protectionism, militarism, welfare states, compulsory cartels, and warring international power blocks. Nationalist and statist economics, an industrial recrudescence of commercial mercantilism, began to dominate Europe. 4. Gustave de Molinari, First Anarcho-Capitalist Of all the leading libertarian French economists of the mid- and late-19th centuries, the most unusual was the Belgian-born Gustave de Molinari, 1819-1912. Born in Liège, the son of a Belgian physician and a baron who had been an officer in the Napoleonic army, Molinari spent most of his life in France, where he became a prolific and indefatigable author and editor in lifelong support of pure laissez-faire, of international peace, and in determined and intransigent opposition to all forms of statism, governmental control, and militarism. In contrast to British soft-core utilitarianism on public policy, Molinari was an unflinching champion of freedom and natural law. Coming to Paris, the cultural and political center of the French-speaking world, at the age of 21 in 1840, Molinari joined the Société d'Economie Politique on its inception in 1842 and became the secretary of Bastia's Association for Free Trade when it was formed in Paris in 1846. 
He soon became one of the editors of the association's periodical, Libre Echange. Molinari quickly began to publish widely in the free trade and free market press in Paris, becoming an editor of the Journal des Economistes in 1847. He published the first of his many books in 1846, Economic Studies on the Organization of Liberty and the Abolition of Slavery. The young Molinari, however, hit the laissez-faire-oriented Société d'économie politique like a thunderclap in 1849 with his most famous and original work. He delivered a paper expounding for the first time in history a pure and consistent laissez-faire to the point of calling for free and unhampered competition in what are generally called uniquely public services in particular the sphere of police and judicial protection of person and private property. If free competition is better and more efficient in supplying all other goods and services, Molinari reasoned, why not for this last bastion, police and judicial protection, a view that over a century later would come to be called anarcho-capitalism. Molinari first set forth his view in the Journal des Economistes, the periodical of the Société, in February 1849. This article was quickly expanded into book form, Les Soirées de la Rue Saint-Lazare, a series of fictional dialogues between three protagonists, the conservative, advocate of high tariffs and state monopoly privilege, the socialist, and the economist, clearly himself. The final, or eleventh, soiree elaborated further on how his concept of free market protective services could work in practice. A meeting of the Société d'Economie Politique in the autumn of 1849 was devoted to Molinari's radically new theory as expounded in the soirees. After Molinari had presented the essence of his proposal in a paper, the assembled libertarian dignitaries engaged in a discussion. Apparently the new theory threw them, because unfortunately no one dealt with the essence of the new doctrine. Charles Coquelin and Frédéric Bastiat could only fulminate that no competition anywhere can exist without a backup by the supreme authority of the state, Coquelin and that the force needed to guarantee justice and security can only be imposed by a supreme power, Bastiat. Both engaged in pure assertion without argument, and both here chose to ignore what they knew full well in all other contexts, that this supreme power had scarcely proved to be a reliable guarantor of private property in the past or present, to say nothing, alas, of the future. Of all the leading libertarian minds assembled, only Charles Dunoyer deigned to try to rebut Molinari's argument. He deplored that Molinari had been carried away by the illusions of logic, and maintained that competition between governmental companies is chimerical, because it leads to violent battles. 
Apart from ignoring the truly violent battles that have always occurred between states in our existing international anarchy, Dunoyer failed to grapple with the very real incentives that would exist in an anarcho-capitalist world for defense companies to engage in treaties, contracts, and arbitrations. Instead, Dunoyer proposed to rely on the competition of political parties within a representative government, hardly a satisfactory solution to the problem of social conflict from a libertarian, anti-statist point of view. Dunoyer also opined that it was most prudent to leave force in the hands of the state where civilization has put it. This from one of the great founders of the conquest theory of the state. Unfortunately, except for these few remarks, the libertarian economists assembled failed to deal with Molinari's thesis, their discussion largely criticizing Molinari for allegedly going too far in attacking all use of the power of eminent domain by the state. Particularly interesting was the general treatment of the maverick Molinari by his fellow French laissez-faire libertarian economists. Even though he persisted in advocating his anarcho-capitalist or free-market protection views for many decades, for example in his Les Lois Naturelles de l'Economie Politique, 1887, Molinari was scarcely treated as a pariah for his heretical views. On the contrary, he was treated as he indeed was, the logical culmination of their own laissez-faire views, which they respected, even though they could not fully agree. On the death of Joseph Garnier in 1881, Molinari became the editor of the Journal des Economistes, a post which he occupied until his ninetieth year in 1909. Molinari only backtracked on his anarchistic views in his very late works, beginning in his Sketch of the Political and Economic Society of the Future, 1899. Here he retreated to the idea of a single monopoly defense and protection company, which service would be contracted out by the central state to a single private corporation. How Molinari was considered by his colleagues may be seen from the footnote by Joseph Garnier, the editor of the Journal, on introducing Molinari's first revolutionary article in 1849. Garnier noted, Although this article may appear utopian in its conclusions, we nevertheless believe that we should publish it in order to attract the attention of economists and journalists to a question which has hitherto been treated in only a desultory manner, and which should nevertheless in our day and age be approached with greater precision. So many people exaggerate the nature and prerogatives of government that it has become useful to formulate strictly the boundaries outside of which the intervention of authority becomes anarchical and tyrannical rather than protective and profitable. Fifty-five years later, at the appearance of the first English translation of Molinari's work, his fellow octogenarian, the laissez-faire attorney and economist Frédéric Passy, 1822-1912, wrote a moving tribute to his old friend and colleague Molinari. 
He wrote of his esteem and admiration for the character and talent of the man who is the doyen of our liberal economists, of the men with whom, though, alas, few in number, I have been happy to stand side by side during more than half a century. Passy went on to state that these liberal principles had been proclaimed by Cobden, Gladstone, and Bright in England, and by Turgot, Say, Chevalier, and Bastiat in France. And my belief grows yearly stronger that, but for these principles, the societies of the present would be without wealth, peace, material greatness, or moral dignity. Molinari, Passy added, has maintained these principles from his youth, from his soiree de la rue Saint-Lazare during the 1848 revolution, through lectures and writings, to his editorship of the Journal des Economistes, where, month by month, the important review of which he is editor-in-chief repeats them in a fresh guise. And finally, Molinari's books, where, annually, so to speak, a further book, as distinguished for clearness of grasp as for admirable literary style, goes out to testify to the constancy of his convictions no less than to the unimpaired vigor of his mental outlook and the virile serenity of his green old age.